Hello and welcome. This is the Nutritionist webinar. I am Marianne Fessenden from AMTS. This webinar is one in which we are joined by Dr. Tom Taluki, CEO of AMTS, and we have a real treat in store for you. Tom was raised on a 65-cow dairy farm in eastern New York State. He attended Cornell University, where he received his BS, Master's, and PhD in Animal Science. Tom's PhD work focused on predicting phosphorus excretion of cattle and implementing six sigma quality control principles on commercial dairy farms. Upon completing in 2002, he continued with the development of CNCPS and began consulting with the feed industry. In 2005, he left Cornell University to start Agricultural Modeling and Training Systems, LLC, AMTS. As a co-inventor of CNCPS, Taluki has been focused on ensuring the core biological model is implemented correctly for day-to-day -day ration formulation. In his role at AMTS, along with his partners Caroline Vijay and Lynn and their team, they develop tr and train and provide nutritional technical support for nutritionists and feed industry globally. Tom, Tom has over 150 publications, including journal articles, book chapters, extension articles, and popular press. He is a member of the American Registry of Professional Animal Scientists, where he is a board-certified animal nutritionist. In addition to AMTS, Taluki is a partner in a large dairy in upstate New York. His wife, Bonnie, is a veterinarian, and they have two children. They live near Ithaca, New York. Today, Tom is giving us a unique tour of one of the dairies he works with. A big part of being a successful nutritionist is walking the cows. This webinar is a taste of the new spin we plan to put on webinars next season. As we've been shut up and in front of our commuters for computers for too long this year, we want to give you a chance to get out on a farm. You know Tom. He'll be happy to field questions on nearly any topic you want. So please now enjoy this manure-free barn tour. Remember to jot down any questions you have during the presentation and type them in the Q&A or chat windows. We will start the questions after the presentation. Hi everyone, Tom Tulutke here from AMTS and welcome to the webinar. Uh, when I was tasked with being the speaker for this month, uh, the topic was whatever Tom wanted to talk about. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, instead of having a heavy science-based webinar like we'd normally do. Uh, what we decided was, especially given COVID uh, and the lack of travel with everyone, that we would do a walkthrough tour of a dairy. And, and we're going to use this as a jumping off point for webinars that we're going to do next year because we will focus on individual components of this dairy. Now this dairy that we're going to do uh, is in central New York. Those of you that know me or, or have visited us have probably been to this farm. I'm not going to say its name, I'm not going to say the owner's names or the exact location of the farm just to protect the farm. Uh, I talked with them about that this morning and they are fine with all of this. So a little about the farm. I started working with this farm in 1998 when I was with Cooperative Extension. I've been feeding the cows uh, since April of 98, and I'll show you uh, some changes that have occurred over all these years. It's also the farm where I did most of my PhD work on, uh, where we basically implemented 
industrial quality control principles on farm, namely Six Sigma. Uh, when I started working with the farm, there were about 400 cows. Today, uh, there's about 750 cows going in the tank, uh, so about 850, 870 cows in total. Uh, all heifers are raised, the whole herd's registered, and about 80% of the animals here can be traced back to seven individual heifers that their father bought in 1956. The ownership is two senior partners, their brothers, and then one of their brothers, uh, his son, one of his sons is now part of the farm, so that's the third generation. And there's a fourth non-family member uh, who is a partner as well. That partnership started uh, with the two junior partners two years ago, uh, so it's been going pretty well. It's always a little tricky when you get into inter intergenerational transfers and such. Uh, but everyone's growing uh, as we as we move through this. Uh, it's a unique area this farm is. Uh, it's actually in three watersheds, uh, three critical watersheds, two of which supply uh, drinking water to nearby communities. Uh, one of them uh, it goes into a lake, and that supplies the unfiltered drinking water to municipality area of about 200,000 people. Uh, and the other is uh, an aquifer. Uh, the soils that we're on are deep, well-drained well gravel. Um, and the village wellhead is about 100 meters, 300 feet uh, from the edge of, of one of the fields that the farm has. Uh, that, that provides drinking water for about 60,000 people. So there, there's a lot of environmental uh, things that we've done over the years here. Uh, various types of nutrient management, uh, crop rotations, manure storage, uh, leachate collection systems. Uh, we'll, we'll go through each of these systems. As I'm doing this, as I'm walking around, I'm going to be stopping and starting the camera as we go, uh, just so that we don't lose a lot of time of me walking. Uh, we'll get into some of the production data about the farm and such uh, at the end of this. Uh, and look forward to the discussion periods as we go uh, in the morning and evening sessions of the webinar. So we will be back shortly and we're going to start with the feed center. All right, so we're down here at the feed center and we are at one of the bunks of corn silage. All silage is stored in bunk silos like this. This is actually 2019 crop. Uh, we grow corn silage, grass silage, uh, alfalfa silage. Uh, we did a deal with a crop farmer this year to grow wheat so that we could have our own wheat straw. Uh, the corn silage, as you can see, uh, is pretty decent looking stuff. A little long in the top length. Uh, the combination of, of got a little dry and uh, the chopper being worn out. Uh, that got replaced this year. Uh, corn silage, it, none of it's being large, it's all uh, conventional corn silage. And we grow about 800 acres, maybe more this year, of corn silage. Um, and this is not inoculated. We do not use any inoculants, it's just packed really well. Uh, the densities on this are pretty good. Uh, and it'll even be better this year after upgrading the packing tractor. Uh, this that you see here on the side is some grass silage, uh, specifically for heifers and dry cows. 
Uh, that I'll exp explain a little bit later. Plastic we use is actually a pretty heavy plastic. Uh, it's both, it's double layer of black on one side, white on the other. And as you can hopefully see, there's actually a mesh, a woven mesh that's integrated as part of the plastic to give it strength. Uh, and tires, tires all sidewalls, all touching. Uh, and that, that's the only weights that we use. The top of the silo is uh, pitched uh, as needed as they move back uh, to remove any spoilage. So here we are at the other end of, that, of those bunks. Uh, you can see this is the one that we were looking at from behind. That's all corn silage from 2019 and it should last us till about the first of the year. Uh, and that's always what we try and do is feed previous year's corn silage till at least January 1st, preferably January 15th. It is early September, uh, so we are getting ready to start harvesting corn silage. Uh, we're actually uh, going to be harvesting fourth cut alfalfa silage uh, tomorrow and, and Sunday. Uh, it's being mowed right now. You'll see a couple piles of haylage here. Uh, that's actually grass silage, one for heifers and dry cows and one for lactating cows. Now the difference between them is how many day interval it was between cuttings uh, in the NDF. So this NDF is about uh, 48 or 49. The NDF on that pile is about 65. We've had a very dry year this year. Uh, so we've actually been feeding more grass than we normally do as our, corn si as our alfalfa silage inventories. Oh, typically we would have a bunk full and even when we're done with fourth cut, we may have two thirds of a bunk. So we'll be feeding more corn silage all year. As you can see, this bunk's also empty. This will be filled starting the end of next week with corn silage. And while we're right here, I wanted to show you something that we had to do to meet environmental regulations a couple years ago. Typically when we talk about silage runoff and, and silage leachate, uh, we had an old system that was called the high flow, low flow system that just captured the high flow, highly environmentally dangerous, uh, high BOD, high COD compounds. Those systems don't work. So being on the aquifer like we are, we had to install this. This is a 1.9 million gallon plastic lined pool. And we had to capture, we have to capture all the water coming off the feed area and any water that comes off the bunks any of the plastic and on an average year we average about a meter of precipitation uh, and the only thing we are allowed to do with this water is use it for some irrigation or we have to spread it and treat it like manure and its solids contents very very low so it's, it's basically water uh, but this is what we are required to do with our environmental permits just to give you a little overview of the topography here uh, so here's a field of alfalfa that, that was mowed uh, yesterday, fourth cutting. You can see it's pretty light. Uh, and then as we scroll over here, you'll see one of our corn, corn fields that'll be used for silage. You'll also see some hills there in the background. There's about a six, six to 800 different feet difference in elevation. And the soils go from these gravel, well-drained, deep, 
very normal, very neutral pH soils to the top of those hills where it's wet, shallow, acidic clay. Uh, so we're dealing with several microclimates here, which we use to our advantage. The valleys here, corn silage and alfalfa. The hills, we do some corn, uh, primarily for high moisture ear corn or snaplage. I'll show you that in a minute. And then grass. Uh, and it, it really does allow us to stretch out our, our harvest window and our cropping system uh, pretty effectively. So let me pause it and we will go across the road to the other bunks. Okay, so here's our alfalfa silage bunk. This is a really old bunk. It was built in 1990. Uh, the floor has been replaced uh, in some places twice already. Uh, and it, it needs it again. Uh, the alfalfa here we're looking at is third cutting. Yes, the plastic's all been pulled back because fourth cutting will just be going right in front of this and on top of it. We do inoculate the alfalfa silage uh, with a Buchner eye product. Uh, we try and harvest the alfalfa uh, every 28 to 35 days. Uh, and as I said, we've been in a severe drought this year. Normally by this time, we would be full and wondering where we're going to put forth. But hopefully this year we'll get enough that I can still feed a decent amount of alfalfa, but not as much as we normally do. This is our mixer. Uh, as you can see, it is a four auger mixer. We don't use a vertical mixer. Uh, any dry feeds that go in, any dry forage, which is really just wheat straw that we put into uh, dry cow diets, all goes through a bale chopper. And I'll show you how that particle size looks in a moment. This is our snaplage or the high moisture ear corn. So the idea of this is when we finish maize silage, we change heads to a standard combine head and go right back out and, and start harvesting snaplage. This too, we put an inoculant on given its high value. It is, uh, why do we do snaplage and not just high moisture? Well, that's because we already have the equipment to do silage and it, it gives us additional yield. The starch content of this product is about 60 to 62%. Uh, and the fiber that's in it is the cobs and the leaves. It's high, very highly digestible. Um, we also uh, do feed some dry corn, but by using this product and utilizing the equipment that we have, it allows me to feed diets that are 75 to 80% homegrown. Uh, the diets here are typically 55 to 57% forage. And then I feed a significant amount of this snaplage. So that is a huge savings, a huge cost savings for us in terms of diets. Uh, and we have seen that, we've documented that when we look at year-end financials. Uh, we end, the farm ends up having one of the lower, lower feed costs of farms like this, of this similar size. This is the heifer and dry cow haylage, grass silage that we'll be feeding over the winter. Again, it's harvested to give us about 67% NDF so that we can allow these heifers and dry cows to eat to fill. Then we have this commodity building. And in this commodity building, 
There's a couple bays of sawdust. Uh, this is actually wheat uh, that we will use for cover crop after May silage harvest. Again, we're required to have a, a green crop growing when we go into winter. This is a chocolate candy cookie byproduct. Uh, modest level of starch, pretty high sugar, as well as some fat. Uh, it works really, really well with uh, the high moisture corn and, and dry corn that we've got going in. This is a protein uh, blend, basically. It's bypass soy, in this case it's soy plus. A little bit of bakery uh, byproduct and minerals, vitamins, bypass fat. Uh, and then there's two sources of methionine uh, and lysine in here. Uh, you'll see all the little white pellets if you look close. So that's gonna be both um, Smartamine M and Smartamine ML. Uh, the L giving us a, some bypass lysine. That's fed at about uh, eight pounds or so per cow per day. This is the wheat straw that we use for dry cows. And as you can see, uh, it's a pretty consistent chop length. Uh, we chop that using uh, a, huh, I'll think of the name, I'll show you the equipment, that'll even be better. Uh, but it's a very, very effective way to, to process this and, and we can chop considerable volume in, in not a lot of time. Here's our ground uh, soybean meal, so we still put in, uh, use this in heifers, uh, as well as a pound or two going into the lactating cow diets. And our ground corn. Now, for my friends around the world, when I always talk about starch digestibility, and I always like to do this with you, when you put your hand into a pile of corn, and if it comes out with all that white on it, that shows you that you have some lower vitreousness corn, so pretty good starch digestibility. I challenge my friends in South America, uh, other parts of the world, to do that with a pile of ground corn and your hands typically come out clean because of how hard your starch is. And then a bay of sawdust. Uh, we bed everything with sawdust. Uh, yes, a little manure storage system for a heifer barn. We'll come back to the heifers later. Everything uh, loaded into the feed mixer goes, is done with this payloader. Uh, you'll notice there is no facer. So that face, the faces that you've seen, the way that they're done, is just done purely with this payloader. And then we have several bag products uh, that we store uh, in one of these old shipping containers. So that would be like uh, mineral mixes for heifers and dry cows, uh, the pre-fresh um, protein mix, uh, bicarb, etc. Okay, so with that, we will now move and look at calves. Okay, welcome back. We are now over by our calf area. And you'll see a couple interesting things here, actually. Um, all calves, we raise all heifer calves. Uh, bull calves are sold uh, within the first week of life. Uh, all heifer calves receive their first feeding of colostrum uh, near the, the calving area, uh, which we'll get to later.
and then they come over here and they start in hutches uh, for example here's a cute little one um, they'll stay in hutches uh, we're still working out a little bit of this uh, plan uh, because the calf barn you see right there uh, is only been populated since July uh, we were doing everything in hutches up until about 40 days of age uh, but we built one of these this is a sturdy built uh, prefab barn uh, we built the first one of these about four years ago uh, and the farm liked it so much that we decided to build a second one this year uh, and we also expanded the first one a little bit so that we only have maybe 25 or 30 hutches that we'll ever need at one time these barns are really cool in that there's curtains on the back curtains on the front up here above the pens uh, each pen is a group is three calves and as you can see uh, they're, they're individual uh, and then close to weaning uh, we can pull these center dividers out here and actually create small groups of two or three calves we only feed, uh, we feed waste milk and we feed milk replacer one time a day. Uh, the, the waste milk is fed twice a day. So yes, three times a day feeding. Uh, calves are offered water and calf grain uh, right from day one of life. Uh, we don't expect them to eat any calf grain for the first week, but it's there to give that, let them start sniffing it and exploring it. Uh, we can go through what we're actually feeding the, the volumes amount and uh, volume amounts and like that uh, later uh, or as a completely new webinar series maybe i will say this um, we've had a pretty hot summer uh, and the, the calf manager that we have now has been doing a phenomenal job we have three sets of scales so i have weights on animals birth uh, about day 70 then at six months first estrus breeding and then about six weeks pre-calving i went through and looked at the numbers last week and our average from birth till day 77 was the average number of days uh, that they were weighed are averaging 2.45 times birth weight uh, we wean at day 50. so that that weight includes the uh, slump and gain that we see post weaning it, it, we put a utility room here in the middle of this barn uh, so all milk replacer uh, nice little calf treatment area if we have any sick calves uh, there, there's the uh, brand milk replacer we use uh, everything can be cleaned all the pails are cleaned here and hung up to dry uh, they're, they're washed after every feeding uh, water is done two or three times a day uh, which has been a big improvement with this barn uh, that we can actually just drag a hose around uh, to fill water pails instead of having to truck water around. So these calves uh, are going to be anywhere from uh, two to six weeks of age in these barns. And as we walk through, you'll notice that there's no empty pens. Again, the young stock manager we have has been doing a fabulous job. Her death loss uh, since she started uh, is probably one or two calves out of probably 200 that, that she's had uh, that
that she's been able to feed. Uh, you'll see no empty pens, perky looking little babies. And on a nice day like this, there's, they have good level of shade. Uh, and it's pretty cool in, in these barns, especially with the curtains back and forth, back, back and front all open. They're actually a, they're actually a pleasure to work work in. After they're weaned, um, they'll be weaned and, and kept in groups of three in here for about day, till about day 70, day 75 of life, and then they all get moved. And they get moved to group housing, groups of 10 to 13, into this barn. Uh, this barn was originally built in 1996 um, and has been expanded once and there's discussions on the table about tearing it down and, re and replacing it next year. It's a bedded pack, okay, a group of calves will move in here and then every week they get pushed down uh, to the other end of this barn and then move to a different barn. So what are we feeding with these kids? Well, this first pen, uh, they start getting introduced to the high cow TMR. And this first pen, they still also get a few pounds of calf starter a day uh, while they work through that transition. After that pen, throughout the rest of this barn, up through six months of age, these heifers are fed the high cow TMR. Uh, we do that because I need the levels, levels of gain uh, the average age of first calving here is 21 months and has been for over 20 years. And we get down here to the, the, towards the end of this pen and I'm going to show you some five month old calves and you can see how their body condition score looks. Did the calculations last week and from day 77 till six months when I have the next weight we are averaging over 2.9 pounds a day in average daily gain. Uh, again, just fed the high cow TMR. There is no dry hay. There is no supplemental grain being top dressed for them. Uh, it's just a diet that actually is designed to support about 100 pounds of milk. And these little kids just come in here and just grow like weeds. Uh, it, it's actually beautiful to watch how consistent they will be uh, when they come out of this group. After this barn, uh, they move to a larger pen uh, and they are introduced to freestalls. And that's where we're going to go next. Okay, so now we're with the heifers from six months up until about 11, 11 or 12 months of age in this barn. Again, this barn was built in 96. Yeah, they built a lot of barns in 95 and 96. Uh, it was a consolidation of, four, of where they had four Tysol operations and they brought them all together into one. So, the first pen down here are the, are the girls between six and seven months. Uh, they're still fed the high cow TMR and they are introduced to freestalls. 
And for the most part, they do a pretty good job of learning to use a freestyle. There's always a couple that take a little bit longer. Then um, they move up to this pen where they're, it's a little bit larger and they are eight, nine months of age in this pen. And this TMR is my one heifer diet. I used to have two um, and then just for, for ease of simplicity, I uh, merged them into one. And this diet is really formulated for uh, these heifers at about seven months, eight months, as well as the uh, late pregnant heifers. Uh, they're pretty similar in their requirements. Uh, gains from six months to first estrus uh, are over two pounds. I've, I don't remember that number off the top of my head. I'll bring up that spreadsheet when we get to the office. You can see a set of scales here in the middle. Um, and then this pen, they actually have access to outside. Uh, there, there's a hill that they climb uh, and it's basically a six or seven acre exercise yard. And it can be snowing and blowing and cold and you'll still see these heifers out there running up and down the hill. Uh, just out there being, being the teenagers that they are and wanting to play and get into everything. After this barn, uh, they move to the next heifer barn, which we will go up to right now. Okay, so this is pen 50 on the left and on the right we've got pen 60. Pen 50, these heifers are uh, yearlings. Uh, this is our breeding pen. Uh, and they have access to outside. Uh, during the summer, uh, these two groups have access to about uh, 10, 15 acres apiece. Uh, it's up, up, the, up a pretty steep hill. During the winter, that pasture gets closed off, but they still have the hill to go run up and down uh, for exercise. Uh, everything's AI, uh, our breeding efficiency numbers, I'll bring up when we get to the office. I never keep those straight in my head. Uh, and then once they're confirmed pregnant, uh, about they'll stay in that pen for a couple more months and then about uh, four months pregnant, they'll, be, they'll come over into this side. And from about six weeks, eight weeks pre-calving, uh, depending on how overcrowded we are, uh, they move down into the close-up area. So you can see these girls, uh, the consistency in size, uh, as well as what body condition score looks like on these heifers. I really hate fat heifers. Uh, and these are running at about a body condition, uh, body condition score I'm pretty comfortable with. There's some in here that are probably a little heavier than I like, but uh, just by a little. There's no one severely, severely fat in here. One of the things that we've learned with having a 21 month age of first calving is with how fast we're growing them, we've got to get them pregnant on first or second service. Uh, every year there'll be a few percent of heifers that, that'll be several services and one or two of them will be picked out a couple times a year to go for slaughter because they're just too fat and, and they just they they don't get bred um death loss on heifers post weaning 
uh, is pretty damn low. It, it's it's going to be less than 1%. Uh, it's very seldom that we lose one. There'll be some voluntary culling, especially down in that calf transition barn of any heifer that looks small or uh, isn't keeping up or just doesn't look like she's going to be able to do well through the system. Uh, and with the number of animals that we have, uh, there's, it's been a little bit more aggressive on, on that heifer culling. Uh, sex semen is used a little bit, primarily it would be on heifers, uh, and that is uh, for the simple reason of continuously expanding. Uh, every, any growth that we have here is internal herd growth, um, and the plan is just to keep expanding as we grow into it. Uh, but it's a really tricky thing to keep growing like that because we need another corn silage bunk. Uh, we need another barn. We need, you know, you, you all know how it is. You just keep adding and adding and the whole system needs to be, needs to keep up with where you are in animal numbers and inventory needs. Okay, so we'll go down to the, to the dry cow area uh, where the, the next step of heifers are. Okay, so we're going to get a little bit of background noise here because of the fans that are running. Uh, we do have fans running on the dry cows as well. Uh, the group of cows you see in front of here you are the far-off dry cows. Um, first lactation animals, we give a 55-day dry period. Uh, second and greater lactation animals get a 42 uh, to 49-day dry period. You can see uh, condition score on these far-off dry cows. Um, the diet is uh, heavy grass silage. There's a little bit of refusals from the lactating herd in this diet. Uh, this is where I use them. Uh, the barns are scraped with a skid steer daily. Uh, and if you look, it's kind of hard to see. We'll do it in a black-tanning cow barn. Uh, but there are mattresses uh, for these cows. They are bedded uh, twice a week. Uh, hoof care. I was going to mention this up above with the older heifers. The heifers, uh, less than uh, nine months, uh, they run through just a, a, a hydrated lime uh, path that they walk through to help dry out the feet a little bit. Starting with those breeding age heifers uh, and these dry cows, they go through a formaldehyde foot bath twice a week. Okay, as we move down this barn from the far offs, we come into here are the close ups. Uh, this is the close up pre stalls. Um, and they are in here from 21 to seven days pre-calving. Here's a great shot of a couple of animals right here. Uh, if we look at these three, four animals side by side, uh, the two on our left here are heifers. And that is, I think, knowing her number, probably a third lactation cow. So that gives you a really good idea of the size and scale and frame that we have on our, on our heifer program. Uh, they are coming in uh, pretty close to where they should be on target of about 80-82% of mature weight. Uh, and we, again, we know that because there's our third set of scales on the farm. There's no animals in this little pen right here right now uh, because that is uh, where bulls would be. And Obviously, there's no bull calves here today. So, seven days before calving, uh, the cows move down into this uh, close-up 
bedded pack area. Uh, it was expanded a couple years ago uh, because we were finding that overcrowding this pen, uh, we would always see an, an uptick in retains uh, and a little bit of ketosis and metritis uh, simply by having these cows overcrowded. Uh, it looks like a big pile of feed in front of them, uh, but by morning that'll be mostly gone. Uh, we feed once a day, the whole herd. Uh, dry cows and lactating cows' pens or uh, mangers are cleaned every morning. Uh, heifers are cleaned, I think, every other morning. See, we got fans. Uh, again, keeping these dry cows cool really helps with that transition. And we run about uh, 85, 90% of all calvings occurring here in an individual pen. Uh, and actually, how cool is that? Uh, but to have a cow calving as we're out here. We end up with not many assists. Uh, we, we try to limit the amount of, assist, of assisting with, with cows calving. Uh, we find it's much better to let her try and work that calf out. Uh, and if she's not making progress within an hour or so, then we'll, then we'll potentially do an assist uh, just to help her out. Calves will be separated. Uh, mom will be milked, get the colostrum, and half her calves go into one of these three calving hutches, these three calf hutches, which there's, we got a baby in there, and we got a couple babies in there. They'll stay in there uh, for the first 12 to 24 hours, depending on time of year. Uh, of course, yeah, you know, navel dipped, um, UC, ear tags, uh, E. coli vaccine, uh, all the normal uh, standard protocols that we would do. Now, the next barn we're going to go into is kind of an interesting one. Uh, it's actually our hospital barn, and there's some cows in here that uh, we also ship milk from. Uh, they are older cows uh, that don't get along that well in the free stall. Uh, and it is an old tie stall barn. Uh, this tie stall barn was actually built in the 80s uh, to be a drive-through feeding. And several years ago, we put tunnel ventilation in it. Uh, works out to be a really, really nice barn for the purposes that we use it on. Uh, this little section right in through here is our hospital string. And when we look at why cows would be in the hospital string, uh, we see, let's see, if there's a fresh cow, there's a cow that was off a of feed, we're just giving her lots of, of grass hay, second cut grass hay. Uh, one, two, couple cases of mastitis, another off feed. Uh, our biggest issues would be, you know, mastitis. Uh, and it's uh, about it. Uh, as I walk down through here, that's what the majority of these cows are. We actually, here's actually an RP, uh, but that cow laying down right here had twins. Uh, our incidence of fresh cow disease is very, very low. I'll show you some numbers out of dairy comp when we get there. This side of the barn is actually uh, where we ship milk from these cows. And some of these girls are pretty old. And when we were walking through the, the transition calf barn, I meant to show highlight one calf and I forgot. And I'm I apologize for that because I wanted to introduce her along with this cow. This cow right here 
is if she's not the oldest, she's the second oldest cow in the herd. Uh, she is in her 10th lactation, uh, finishing up, she's pregnant. Uh, she has produced over 265,000 pounds of milk lifetime. Her, her daughter, her great-granddaughter, and her great-great-granddaughter are all in the herd milking. And her great-great-granddaughter, who's a heifer calf, uh, is in that transition barn. So just a really good line of, of, uh, of longevity and profitability on some of these cows. As you may have noticed, this whole herd is Holstein with the exception of one cow. This is the farm where my daughter's cows come, or heifers come when they're ready to calf. So there's one little brown cow here, whose name's Brandy, and we've always got to come over and say hi to the Brandy rat uh, when, whenever I'm here at the farm on Fridays. So from there, we'll go over to the fresh pen. Okay, we're now at the main dairy complex and walking over to the newest barn, which is a four-row barn. Um, this barn was built in two stages. Uh, the first one was 120 stalls, and then we doubled it a couple years ago. Um, like I said, it's a four-row barn, and it houses two groups. It houses the fresh cows and the old cows. We group a little differently here. We actually group more by uh, parity uh, instead of just stage lactation. Uh, the old cows are actually in the parlor right now. Uh, let's take a step in this pen and talk about a couple things here. Okay, so first, here in the feed alley, if I clean some of the manure off, it hasn't been scraped yet, so the cows just got moved out. You'll see that it's actually rubber belting. Uh, so there's uh, four feet of rubber belting here in the feed alley. This is true in all the cow barns. Then we go to groove concrete and then to these stalls. And there's a difference in stalls from the one end of this barn to the other. Uh, this is the newer style mattresses that we're using, coupled with a different style uh, brisket board, which is actually a pillow is what they call it. And the height of the neck rail was increased a little bit on this end as well. Uh, I don't know the dimensions off the top of my head. Uh, we can always go measure them or look them up if you want to know. Uh, you see the clear span, fans, uh, and, and I'll tell you some more about this group of cows uh, when we're talking about their production level. This is actually the group that I base all of my diet formulations off of. Uh, this group today is averaging somewhere, I think, 102, 103 pounds, uh, or 46 or so kilos uh, in the feed bunks. Just moving some feed around here so you can see it. See that we have tiles, uh, and, and not just concrete. I'll show you some tiles in, in the, the, the first freestall uh, that are now 25 years old, uh, and the bunk still looks very good. This is our fresh pen. It is a mix of heifers and cows. It's all parodies. Uh, they are in here. Letting the skid steer go by, folks. He's scraping that pen we were just in. Uh, cows are in here on, on average of uh, 35 to 50 days, depending on 
pressure of number of cows calving. So just we'll just walk down through this pen some so that you can see uh, what the body condition score on our fresh cows looks like. Uh, well, I'll do this. I'll tell you right now, all summer we have been fluctuating in milk between 88 and 91 pounds or uh, 40 to 41, 42 kilos. Uh, average milk fed over the summer. We've had a pretty hot summer. We've been running average of around 3.7 uh, and milk true proteins of 3.05 to 3.1. That's actually down a little bit than what we were earlier in the year. Um, actually just made a diet adjustment yesterday that will go into effect when the next load of protein mix is delivered, uh, which will be next Thursday, will be the first time those cows see that. And it's a real simple change. I just increased the amount of palmitic to bring the, the C16 to 18-1 ratio back to where I'd like to see it be. So if we look up, you'll see open ridge, no insulation. Uh, these barns do get cold. Uh, the curtains are not insulated, they're, they're just a single layer. Uh, and it's all, and when we get really cold, when we get a week or so of uh, below 10 degree Fahrenheit weather, we do have manure freeze. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it's all about ventilation for the cows. Uh, you can see how he's scraping, rubber tire scraper right in front of a skid steer. We milk three times a day, and the pens are scraped like that at, at every milking. You'll see that there's salt blocks, white salt blocks available to every pen. And just because uh, it made the uh, farm management and farm owners happy, we do offer uh, bicarb here in the fresh cows. and. Uh, they almost never eat it, uh, but it, it's one of those feel-good things for the farm. So I'll walk to the, as I walk to the next barn, I'll just show around some of the landscape. Oh, this is a, this is a beautiful September day here in Central New York. Uh, nice blue sky, everything's still green. It's about uh, 74, 75 degrees Fahrenheit, so about 22, 23 degrees C. And it's just a great place to be in the world, especially when it's a day like today when I can walk cows, that makes it even nicer. So here's the first freestall and there's the milking center. We'll go into that after we go through these cows. So this, this facility, these two buildings were built in 95. Uh, cows entered the facility in the beginning of December. And it was originally built with headlocks. Uh, we did a study a number of years ago uh, with extension where we took out one pen of headlocks and just went with a feed rail and after two weeks the rest of the head the rest of the headlocks came out. Uh, we saw an improvement in intake uh, and actually the cows seemed to like it better. They could actually see what was going around them a little bit better. So we got four groups in here. And if anybody wants some birds, I'll gladly box up some starlings and ship them. Uh, I will pay the shipping. All right, so this pen here on our right, 
This is our first calf heifers. Okay. So these girls, this pen averages about 24 months of age. Okay, they're in here from calving up until uh, about 180 days in milk when they move to the next pen. Uh, you can see this is a six row barn. Uh, it was built as a six row because of a cost issue that that is uh, the cheapest way, uh, cheapest per stall is to build six row. Uh, but it's nice that we were able to build the next barn and any additional barns will be four rows. One of the things we do have in every pen, we have a couple in every pen, uh, instead of the big fancy deal valve or, or rotating brushes or like that, we have these um, simple little brushes that have oilers on them. Let me see if we can get over here closer. Okay, and with those oilers, we, we put a, a, a fly, uh, fly spray in them, and the cows will, you can see, they, they spend fair amounts of time grooming themselves. Grooming actually is a cow requirement, it is a required behavior. Uh, they'll spend about 20 minutes a day, according to the research, grooming. And they will wear out those brushes, we have to replace the brushes. Uh, once or twice a year, um, unless they get hit by a skid steer, which uh, <clears throat> never happens anywhere. Uh, just like there's never any broken gates or broken doors uh, due to skid steer damage. Um, okay, so it's, like I said, this is our first half heifers. If we come around on this side, this pen is our late lactation cows. Mixed parodies. Uh, they are just uh there's no rhyme or reason of why they're in there uh just late lactation um and we'll be dried off from we'll be taken across the road to the that stall barn to go down into a slowdown group uh, that's the way we do dry offs now is they get moved they go from 3x to twice x milking and they go from having a a pretty good tmr to the dry cow tmr and over a couple days, uh, they will do a good job of drying themselves off. Now, as we change pens here, I have to climb over a couple gates here. So all manure is scraped here to the center cross alley, and then it's pumped to a manure, manure storage. Uh, this is late first lactation heifers and second lactation animals, okay? Uh, 120 cows in this pen and you can see that there's some cows that think it's too hot so they're cooling themselves uh, <laughs> there's always one isn't there and then this last pen we have here uh, is third lactation cows like I said we, we group primarily by parity so these are all third lactation they can be in here anywhere from day 40 of 30 of lactation they could be dried off out of this pen, or if they are uh, dropping in milk a little bit too fast or whatever, they'll get moved to pen to pen two, this late lactation cow pen. Uh, again, you know, you look at the size and scale, body condition of these cows, this is, so when I'm out walking farms around the world, 
and people ask me about what types of body condition scores I prefer and what size and scale, you know, feet and legs, utter conformation, all of that. This herd is my reference point, folks. Um, like I said, I've been working with this herd for 25 years, or geez, since 1998, so 20, 22 years. <laughs> Actually, it was before that, it was 1997 when I started some stuff with them with extension. Uh, and they are my reference. Um, we have completely re-engineered this farm over the years, uh, ranging from cropping programs, feed storage, feed allocation, etc. Uh, the back of the holding area, uh, you can see there's soakers on, uh, and these cows that we're looking at here actually are those old cows, that old cow pen. Uh, the average age of this pen, I think is, uh, I'll, we'll look it up to be sure, but I think there's somewhere in the uh, 62 to 65 month uh, age range. Uh, these are the profit cows. Uh, those soakers uh, are on with the fans and, and it's actually an automated system that when they turn on the vacuum pump for milking, it actually opens a valve to start the water or else the water never gets turned on. Uh, so we're constantly trying to figure out ways got to change again uh, to outsmart people but they always end up doing better than we can figure out so just try to stay a step ahead the parlor is a double 14 i think or double i think it's a double 14 uh deal valve uh parallel rapid exit with id and milk weights uh, we do have and it also has conductivity but conductivity is pretty worthless in terms of trying to identify mastitis I say that because conductivity looks at the relative difference of where the cow was. So if you have a cow that was relatively high conductivity uh, or running a high somatic cell, it doesn't look to see if she, how big of a change she is. It doesn't look to see what her somatic cell is. It looks at what is the relative change in her conductivity. Really poor relationship actually with somatic cell folks. So uh, one person in the pit, and one person pushing cows, scraping pens, uh, they average about 110 or so cows per hour. So we'll head into the farm office and start looking at some numbers. Okay, so I'm gonna put this down for a second while I bring up some and I'll be right back. Okay, so let's talk about the heifers. So the, like I said, I calculated these numbers last Friday. You can see from birth until, in this case it was 77 days, was the next weight I had. Average 1.53 pounds a day, just about 700 grams. The bigger number here is, look, we're 2.42 times birth weight. And we've got a pretty tight CV across all these weight gains. So that was really nice to see. From weaning to six months, I'm sorry, I was wrong. We're only 2.8 pounds a day, or 1,273 grams. Six months, the first asterisk, 2.38, or just about 1,100 grams. And from bread to when they enter the close-up pen, right at two pounds a day, or 900 grams. Uh, and like I said, we need to do that because we do average of 21 months age of first calving. If we look at this from a graph standpoint, 
So there is, to give you an idea of the time's birth rate, uh, pretty tight uh, representation. Do have some animals that really do, you know, so I don't look at weights on calves, I look at this time's birth weight because some of these really high increments could have been smaller calves at birth. If we look at it from, a, from gains across all those periods, uh, so we get that really nice big peak of gain from, from weaning to, to six months, which is great because that's when they are really efficient in terms of protein and, and muscle and frame growth. Uh, and then it kind of sl it slows down like we would expect, but overall we're averaging well over two pounds a day uh, from birth to calving. We jump over into, into dairy comp. Okay, so we have uh, total herd size, you can see, uh, and it's nice doing this early in the month like this because these are pretty representative of today then. 1,575 total animals, 762 milking, 91 dry, 722 livestock, uh, test day, and, and we aren't on DHI. This is the seven-day milk average of the previous week, uh, right at uh, 88 pounds or 40 kilos. Uh, and you can see some pretty nice peaks here, average peaks on mature cows. We'll bring that, that up as a graph. Average days on milk, you look at this across the whole year. Our low is 148, our high is 156. Okay, this is, Repro here has been, is a huge focus. Um, and we do everything we can to keep that, that calving interval. You know, we're down to 374 days. We like to keep that, that's, that's probably a little lower than we should be at even. Uh, we, but as long as we keep that below 390, uh, that, that keeps us at a higher level of that lactation curve and, and is keeping our milk up nice. Uh, repro, okay, so age of first calving, 21 months, and I can bring up a graph. Uh, we can look at a couple things there with that. Um, Preg palpation rate, you know, going through heat stress, we had a bad, we had a bad stretch. I'll bring up uh, the 21 day preg risk here shortly. Um, number of treated for mastitis that is not recorded here in, in, in dairy comp, uh, but this number of treated for DAs is real. Uh, we haven't had a DA uh, that we've treated in, in a couple of years. Uh, transition cow diets are, are everything in keeping these numbers low. Uh, metritis retains, uh, ketosis, uh, all, all below, uh, all below 2%. No, we don't test for ketones. No, we don't test calciums to see if we're, what are we for subclinical hypocalcemia. Uh, but we have been part of numerous studies with Cornell, uh, where they have done all those testings and similar type diet, similar management, uh, from those studies to now. And, and we've always been one of the lowest levels uh, in any of those studies. Uh, when we look at number of cows that have left the herd uh, within in the first month of calving, so here we got 95, 95 fresh cows and only two left in the first uh, 30 days of lactation. Uh, that, that's pretty flipping phenomenal, folks. You know, the goal is uh, less than 60 days in milk. We'd like to see less than 5%. Uh, some people say less than 7%, uh, but we really, that, that's telling us our, our transition cow success is 
really not only just peaks, but also how many cows we're losing there in, in early lactation. Uh, if we look at the current milk across the pens, bring up another report, and you can see, so pen one are those uh, average age of 43 months, so that, that's that uh, primarily third lactation animals, they're averaging right at 100 pounds, 162 days in milk. Uh, that old cow group is pen five, average age of 63 months, uh, 171 days in milk, and they are right at a, basically at 100 as well. Uh, th those two groups are, are really nice to see. Um, looks like we're down a little bit on milk today. Uh, who knows why? Uh, it's gotten warm again for the last couple of days, so we just keep watching that. Um, I'll bring up a couple graphs here for you to see so that we can look at uh, how these cows are, are coming on. Uh, so I'm doing seven day milk average by days in milk for uh, pen equals six. We'll look at the fresh cows first and we'll also include lactation number in that graph. Um, Okay, so there you can see the red, the red dots are first calf heifers, uh, and they're coming up here. Let's see, right here is about 40. This is this line right here is 40 kilos or 88 pounds. Uh, so by day 40, uh, we're hitting these girls uh, in in the mid 80s on first lactation animals. Uh, second lactation animals are the ones in blue. Uh, you can see they're coming up uh, day 12, day 15, uh, probably averaging 43, 44, 95, 98 pounds of milk. Uh, got some older cows here. This dark green is lactation three. Uh, they're a little bit higher. And they're coming out of here, you know, number of cows that are over 120 pounds of milk. You know, here's a group of mature cows that are there. Uh, I'll refresh this graph with, um, I'll do it by lactation now uh, for equals one. Okay, so here's the overall lactation for the first calf heifers. Uh, you can see pretty, pretty standard curve for heifers come up and pretty much stay flat. Uh, to give you an idea of the numbers here, Okay, so we look at the number of heifers that are, we got over 40 kilos of milk or 88 pounds. Uh, they, they've been coming up uh, pretty strong. This is something I've been focusing on uh, the last year is trying to get these, these girls' peaks up a little bit higher. Uh, if we look at second lactation animals, okay, you can see we got girls up there peaking at uh, 136, 140 pounds of milk. Uh, you know, these girls are always the fun ones to look at, but the ones that I always like to look at is what's wrong with these girls? Uh, why, why are they only in the 70s or low 80s on milk? Uh, you know, if we look at one of them, uh, there's nothing, uh, she had mastitis, okay, uh, test days, yeah, she's, yeah, so that was a mastitis issue as to why that points down. Um, if we look at the mature cows, so we'll do 
greater than three. Okay, so there, let's see, eight lactation. So there is, I wonder if that's that cow that I showed you in the tie stall. Let's see. 216, she's, nope, she's actually out here in the free stalls. So here's a eighth lactation cow, 220,000 pounds lifetime milk, and still wandering out here in the free stall. Don't you wish we could have a whole herd of cows like that? Um, so pretty decent levels of production, you know, nothing, you know, we're not a hundred pound herd, uh, but we're consistent and consistently increasing. It, it's really driven a lot by forage quality for us. Um, if we bring up thread sum and the 21 day preg risk, point out something here to you pretty interesting. Okay, so we got a couple, the last two heat check, the last two preg checks, we've only been 21. Uh, these that are above 30. Uh, starting with this 31 all the way through here, uh, been, we've been feeding uh, 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 one of these bypass fats uh, that's supposed to help with repro. I'm only feeding it in the close-up period, and it definitely is helping. Uh, this, is, this is just some, we've had pretty long stretches of hot weather this, this summer. Uh, so that is probably five to six points higher than we could normally be during summer. Uh, so it's, they're not great, but I'm happier than, uh, than I have been in the, pat, in the past years uh, compared to some of these numbers. Um, I'm trying to think if there's Another set of numbers that I could show everyone. Oh yeah, let's do this. Events for lat zero slash SI. And we will take from, we'll go from June one till today. And we'll do this table by days of milk. So we'll do fresh uh, mast RP milk fever. Uh, detritus sold and died. Okay. So over that three month range, 21 cows with RPs. Uh, and if we were going and look at them, a uh, fair number of them are, are probably twins. Uh, nine, okay, so if we take the first 60 days of lactation, uh, 16 out of 277 cows have left to the herd in that period, uh, which is 5.7% uh, folks. Um, I feel pretty happy with that number. Uh, these RP cows, oh, let's see, events. Uh, she had a dead bull, okay. Um, she had a bull, who knows why she did, who knows why she did. Same with her. So those looks like just some 
a random blip in an increased number of RPs. Uh, could have been heat stress, could have been uh, other things that, that were going on. Uh, could have been a diet screw up too, you know, changing forages throughout the summer. Um, that's a pretty good uh, place to leave it for the uh, for the records. Um, you can always ask questions when when we're on this together. I'll be right back here shortly, folks. This is where we'll end the walking tour today. Um, the owners of the farm are very very green blooded. Uh, you know, there's. Not many pieces of equipment that aren't green here, but this is probably the prettiest lineup. Ranging anywhere from a 2520 to a 3020, 4320, 4620, and a 6030. The 4020 is obviously hooked up to something. They actually do, even though they are collector, collector's tractors. They do use them on rakes and and uh, maybe a merger or uh, for tetting or a couple other tasks just to, just to work the old girls. Uh, with that, I think that's a great way to finish this, uh, this part of the webinar and look forward to answering any questions or having any discussions with you in the morning or in the evening. So with that, folks, We will just have a wonderful afternoon and talk to all of you shortly. Bye. That was a great webinar and I hope you enjoyed it. We will take your questions in a few minutes, but first let me tell you about the October webinar. Next month, we will be joined by Dr. Trevor DeVries, Professor and Canada Research Chair at the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph. Trevor received his B. B.S. in Agriculture from the University of British Columbia, UBC, in 2001. Immediately following, he began graduate studies at UBC, where he received his Ph.D. in 2006. Following that, he spent one year as a postdoctoral fellow with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. In 2007, he was appointed as faculty with the University of Guelph in the Department of Animal Biosciences. In that position, Trevor leads a highly productive research program focused on dairy cattle behavior, nutrition, management, and welfare. His talk next month will focus on nutritional management for cows milked with automatic milking systems. Join us for the presentation, followed by a live question and answer session twice on October 8th. The presentation will start at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. As you know, these webinars take a lot of work and cooperation. The webinars are organized and produced by AMTS USA and Global. Our longtime collaborator and our co-host in the afternoon webinar is Paula Torillo of Efina, who hosts the series as El Webinar del Nutritionista. She receives the support from Guermo Lerman, Technal, Rock River Lab in Argentina, Bioterre, and Conicar. She has the excellent translation skills of Paula Alanis backing her up. Paula and Paula, again, are joining us in the afternoon webinar. We are also thanking our AMTS distributors. In Italy, Elena Bonfante of Dairy Innovations Italia, 
who joined us this month with her partner, Bill Prokop, of Dairy Innovations in the morning session. From China, we have Sean Lee of Ansi Tech. He joined us also in the morning and the afternoon sessions. From Brazil, Marcelo Hans Ramos, director of 3R Lab. He joined in the afternoon webinar. We are also joined by Marcos Neve Piera of Universidade Federale de Lavras in Brazil for the afternoon session. He was not able to personally join us, but he did send questions. We are especially thankful to generous sponsors who make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy cow health, and the Canola Council of Canada. Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com. Our silver sponsors are Ajinomoto Heartland, superior nutrition through amino acids, makers of Agipro L, Dairyland Laboratories, and Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA, Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s. Our bronze sponsors are Dairy One Forge Laboratory, Amino Max, Adiseo, Purdue Agribusiness, PMI, and Sorclore. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you will consider them in your formulation decisions. We will now share the questions from both the morning and the afternoon sessions. Some of the questions are repetitious, but Tom doesn't always answer exactly the same way. It's quite a long Q&A session, so prepare yourself. You may want to listen to this in two parts. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm going to show you a few things, and we'll go through some of the questions that, that have come in already. Uh, one of the questions was what our voluntary waiting period is, and it's 50 days. And any cow that has not been serviced by day 70 uh, goes on OPSYNC. Um, and like I said, it's all AI. There's, uh, and there'll be a, each cow will be looked at individually as to how many breedings, how many services will let her go. Uh, and then they'll stay in the herd uh, until they drop below a certain level of production or we need room. Uh, before calling. Um, and yes, some of these cows, uh, when we get close to dry off, uh, and our dry off periods are for first lactation cows, it's 55 days, and for everyone else, it's uh, 42 to 45 days. Uh, what we do is we move them from um, the freestall into a slowdown group. And they go from 3x milking to 2x milking, and they get changed to the far off dry cow diet. Uh, so, in a matter of two or three days, uh, their milk production has dropped tremendously, uh, and we can easily dry them off at that point. Uh, that, that's really helped with, with controlling any potential uh, dry cow mastitis problems or fresh cow mastitis problems that we've had in the past. Um, one of the other questions that we got was what bypass fat are we using for the preg rates to that's helped with the preg rates. Uh, and that is, um, uh, church and whites. Uh, the, the current name is Essentium, uh, used to be known as Megalac R, uh, and I only use it in the close up period, uh, because of 
cost and, and how cows are grouped. If, if I could group cows or if I had uh, a couple different groups, I would probably do it in, in early lactation too. Uh, but talking with, with some people, uh, 70, 75% of the benefit we're, we're capturing by there in the uh, close-up period. Uh, a couple questions on calves that we had. Uh, Tom? Yeah. <laughs> can, we, uh, can we say hi to Bill and Elena and go to some questions from them before we tackle some of the other questions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. You forget how I do these things. I, you're right. <laughs> Hi, Bill. Hi, Elena. Adam. And also, Sean. Sean, um, you're, I think you're going to have to fight for, for talking time here. So, um, Elena, Bill, okay. Sean, yeah. do you have any questions you would like to venture forth? Yes, I do. Can I start? Oh. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. Tom, great presentation, by the way. And since we started with calves, uh, I want to ask you, in your opinion, which is the difference, if any, uh, between a dry diet uh, post-weaning and, um, you know, silage or wet diet with silages? Ah, as, as you saw, yeah, we go right from calf starter to the high cow TMR. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of this. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the world that, that these animals need to have dry hay or, or, or chopped straw or anything. Um, as long, it's a ruminant. As long as that calf is, is being fed a diet that is balanced to support their rates of gain that are desired, things work fine. Um, I always go back to uh, beef cows. You know, what's a beef calf eat? It's not eating dry forage. It's eating a lot of water with all that pasture that they consume. Uh, it all comes back to how well that diet's balanced. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. I agree. Elena, do, do you have more calf-related questions before we go off that topic? So calf related so far, no. Okay, um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let's do a little grouping of our questions because I do have some calf related questions. Um, these are, some of these are, I'll group of, uh, three of them that came in from our, our audience. Um, do you have a difference in calf management and nutrition between winter and summer? <laughs> So the, the, the biggest difference that we do uh, winter and summer is uh, because it, it gets cold here. I mean, we'll, we'll have, oh, and it's a wet cold with all the snow and high humidity that we have and wind. Um, it, it's actually kind of a funny story. Uh, several years ago when we were just feeding twice a day, uh, we were looking at weight gains of summer versus winter uh, calves. And I was able to clearly show that those calves during the winter grew slower. So that's when we added that, that third feeding of, of milk replacer at noon. Uh, and we 
the, the two courts that we feed at noon uh, were enough to model it to bring gains back up to where we want them to be. And come March the following year, uh, the, one of the owners who, who's in charge of the herd uh, said, I think we're gonna keep doing this throughout the summer. And, and I just started laughing and I was like, I knew you would uh, because uh, it is a, a pretty nice gain response. And we've been feeding three times a day ever since. Uh, what we do make sure of during the winter is that the calves are, are fully dry. They'll stay in, in one of those hutches in the calving area um, a little bit longer. Uh, if it's really cold, we, we've got a, a, uh, a heat lamp uh, just to make sure that, that they're, they're fully dry, upstanding, uh, perky. Uh, it may be, if it's really cold, it may be an extra day, um, but that's about it. Uh, beyond that, it, it's just ensuring that, that there's adequate uh, milk volume going to them to, to supply enough energy for them to, to continue growing. Okay, um, thank you, thank you. And while staying on calves, sort of in related to that, do you see lactation performance between winter-born animals compared to others? That's a really good question. Um, and I have not gone back and looked at that data. Uh, we do, uh, you know, with, with some of the calf modeling stuff that we've done, uh, the, their maintenance requirements go up during the summer anyway due to heat stress. Um, so I, I think we're, we're at a plane of nutrition where those differences would be small now. If we were only feeding twice a day or if we were feeding a, a, a lower volume, say six liters a day, um, we would, I think we would definitely pick up a difference there. Uh, to just, yeah, no, I, I've never gone back and looked at that, but I do know some of the data out there does show it. Okay, still on the subject of calves. Um, do you, and this was, I remember that you had a greater rate of growth actually post weaning. Um, do you consider more growth rate before weaning? Would you want to change that? Well, that, that, that's, that's a hard one uh, because remember that, that those, those genes that we talked about um, in, in the calves include that, that weak, uh, two weeks, oh no, in this case, it'd be closer to three weeks post weaning. And, and that is one area where we are not doing as well as I would like. Uh, it's a labor management issue. Our weaning program is not, uh, is not ideal. Uh, and I know that we probably don't see much gain for the week, 10 days post weaning. Um, so, even with that included, we're still getting that, that just about two and a half times birth weight. 
I, I would love to, and I, I can probably do it now with, with our current calf feeder, uh, get weights right at weaning and then be able to show uh, what's actually going on and, and, and implement a better weaning program. Uh, I would love to, to see those numbers up. There's no reason why we aren't 2.7, 2.8 times birth weight. Uh, I think it's just a, uh, some simple management changes that I've got to push through. Okay, thank you. And I've got one more question on calves and then we'll um, go back to some questions from Elena or Sean or Bill um, or any comments that any of them might have on these calf topics we've had. Actually, I have two. Um, one is, and I'll refer to a webinar we did a year ago, April. Do you, what are your thoughts on robotic feeding of calves? We had Akira Sato, Dr. Akira Sato from Japan speak on a little bit on that. Um, and his were specific, very specific to um, his work in Japan with, with robotic feeders and um, oh, quite a bit on, on Kobe or not, the apps yeah. that make Kobe V. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, what are your thoughts? And we'll um, ask one more question and then go to some other topics, I think. Okay. I love, I, I don't care if it's robotic feeders or if it's uh, mob feeders with something like acidified milk. Um, there is definitely advantages there to you know, not only just in terms of growth, but, but the, the uh, behavioral side the, the, of group housing, uh, it does dictate some different management uh, challenges. Um, and the, the biggest problem that I've always seen with anything like this is, is actually the housing systems that, that people typically try to put calves in to be able to do group housing or uh, even individual feeding is really aimed at the comfort of the human and, and not what's right for the calf. And that's a lot of air volume. Um, I've seen some amazing uh, robotic feeders implemented that have been in basically wide open hay barns with lots and lots of air and those calves just fly. Um, the probability of it ever happening on this farm is next to zero uh, because they have been uh, pounded on for years and years and years about the importance of individual cap housing and disease uh, prevention, um, which is definitely a, a component to consider. Uh, any system can any system can work and work well with the with the right management and right nutrition. Okay, I promised one more question, but now I have two. Um, and I had this question when watching the video earlier. Do you find calf manage the change between whole milk and milk replacer well? In terms of you mentioned that you're doing waste milk for two feedings and then a combination of waste milk and milk replacer. Do you have any issues with nutritional scours? I also noted no scours on the side of the, um, the pens as you went through. So I thought, well, must be it's working well. What are your, your comments? Uh, well, let me, let me say two things on that. Uh, one is, you know, our waste milk that we use is, the milk that we use is probably 
70% waste milk. And, and that would be uh, from cows that are, that are off treatment um, or uh, fresh cows that, that, that are, you know, just those, that day or so be, uh, before they, they test clean on, on, uh, uh, on the antibiotic test. Um, and it's not pasteurized. And I think that is one thing that, that's, I would love to try is could we see a, a gain response from using a, a pasteurizer? I, I think there still is enough of a, a, a bacterial load there that, that it might be hurting us. Uh, the milk replacer, the, the <laughs> it's a very special milk replacer. Uh, and it, it's, it's only, it's not available all over the world. It's only available in a few spots and it's, formulated to look as much like whole milk as possible. Uh, there's a lot of just potentially a lot of discussion that could go on about that, but we won't get into that. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it's a 30-32 milk replacer. Uh, and it, it acts and mixes like whole milk. Uh, and the calves don't even they don't even seem to notice that that noon feeding is, is not whole milk. Okay, yeah, and I, I just wanna say that we are planning to try to do some little, little pockets of webinars next year and calf feeding is one of them. Um, so I think, so that we don't hijack this whole entire conversation to calves, we'll, we'll end with promises for next year, more information, and a final question. Do you use um, genomics at all and at what age? We have not. We've talked about it some, um, and we may get into doing uh, some genomics, but not so much initially for genetic selection uh, in terms of health traits or production traits. Uh, but there's an opportunity for us to start shipping A2 milk. Ah. So we have to go through and test the whole herd. Uh, so we'll see. It, it's, that, that's a, that was all planned to start by now, but then COVID hit. Yeah, my understanding is Jerseys have a lot of A2 genetics there, Tom. Yeah, well, there's a lot of Holsteins, <laughs> too, and, and we've been, the last couple of years, all bulls have been selected to be A2, so we should be at least a third of the herd already. Cool, cool. Hey, this, is, this is Bill. Can I jump in for a second? Yes, yes. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Hi, Bill. I applaud your... Uh, um, reinforcement of the robotic situation. I think that that is the optimal way to feed calves all systems work. The problem with robotics is I think people have found that facilities are not adequate for ventilation for robotic grouping and they blame the robotics, but it's, it's a management thing and I wanna emphasize that. So given that, um, I'm not sure you mentioned, but what's your comfort level of percent solids in your milk replacer that you feed um, and and what's the maximum they get of delivery in, in, in terms of liters or quarts a day and um, is that an opportunity to increase if labor weren't a, a factor okay um, we do our milk replacer at 15% solids okay and 
depending on the milk replacer, uh, there's a couple that I would consider going a little bit higher. Uh, but most of them on the market, uh, especially in the U.S., I wouldn't even, I would struggle even going to 15% solids because of how high the osmolalities are. Great. Uh, there's just so much whey protein that we use that, that and that's where nutritional scholars is, is a lot coming from. It's just osmotic balance mess ups and, and it causes all sorts of problems. Uh, Dr. Sato just seconded that. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, and and uh, so our, our feeding schedule is such that the first three feedings are colostrum and then they go on oh, three quarts of milk in the morning and at night and two quarts of milk replacer at noon. And then at day 21, they go up to four quarts of milk in the morning and, and, after, and evening and, two, and still that two quarts of milk replacer at noon. Um, so we're basically talking eight and 10 quarts of just about eight and 10 liters per calf per day uh, up through day 48. And then I won't tell you what our weaning program is because that is bad. <laughs> I will. Okay. So on day 49, they, they, the, the, the milk replacer is removed. And on day 50, they're in, uh, as well as on day 50, and then day 51, they have none. None milk? Yeah. We, we pull the noon feeding for two days and, and then they're, they're hard weaned and uh, all at once. Yep. That's, that's killing us. I know it. Uh, I, it's always been a labor issue. Uh, and I think we're at a point where I can change that now, but I need to do some, I need to collect some data to prove it. So are you, you're not pasteurizing the colostrum then either, right? Correct. Okay. And are, but the colostrum must be pooled then if you're giving it over three feedings, the first three feedings, or is, is, the, is the first dedicated and, and after that it's whatever? The, the first is dedicated and then after that, yeah, it, it's whatever. Okay. Tom, I'm sorry to interrupt. With the non-pasteurization, do I had a question? Do you have any issues with yoni? We do not. Okay. Uh, we are. This is a closed herd that they haven't bought. They haven't bought any animals in over. Wow, it's been probably been close to fifteen years since since an, any animals were purchased, uh, and and those were from closed herds, and they were all tested. Uh, before any animals were purchased, and they would have just been uh, springing heifers that were purchased. Uh, Bill and and Elena, Tom, do you have any more comments on calves? I think we could do the whole entire thing with with questions, and Akira would like to ask questions. Um, but let's uh, let's move to some other topics if that's agreeable with everyone. Bye. Okay, terrific. Um, I'm gonna, Tom, while you're, while you're, uh, while I'm looking through the questions, would you go back and discuss again your, let's 
I'm lost. Um, <laughs> discuss your, let's do this. Let's do some um, follow up on some uh, last month's webinar that we had on cooling. Um, we had a question from Israel. Can you offer a few words in regards to the cooling management and the routine in the holding area and um, the feeding alley? Okay, so uh, in, in, the, in the barns themselves, it's real simple. Uh, once the, temp, the, the ambient temperature gets above 17, 18 degrees C, uh, all the fans are turned on and, and they basically stay on and all, all through spring, summer, and most of fall until uh, we are consistently below 17 degrees during the days. Uh, <clears throat> We used to have, we used to apply water in one barn, uh, misters, uh, and uh, I did it as a real cheap system. Uh, so <laughs> it, it worked, it worked well. It's just that, that we were adding huge amounts of water to, to the manure system uh, and, and we're having some problems with somatic cell. Um, eventually we're gonna have to go through and put, put good water systems in for soaking the cows, uh, especially with how, how our summers have been changing the last several years. Uh, the fans and water in the holding area, uh, same thing. Once days are getting above, much above 17, 18 degrees, uh, that system's implemented and that water system and the fans are all tied into the, uh, the milking system. Um, <laughs> we would always find that the, uh, the milkers would forget to turn on the water, forget to turn on the fans. Uh, so, the, so the farm just went through and wired those into the same switch as uh, the milking system. So. Now, as soon as they turn on, um, as soon as they start the, the parlor, those two systems come on automatically. Okay, okay thank you. Um, some questions about the, um, let's see, where was I? The drying, drying off process and um, could you, I, I guess this Question was, could you repeat and specify the drying off process change to what diet and how many days? And then we also have some questions in relation to the drying off program, that, program that's a little bit more in the parlor. Yep, okay. So again, uh, dry cows off once a week, they will be moved uh, so that they get milked only twice a day instead of three times a day and they are put on the far off dry cow diet um, and they will stay that will be for i think it's four days uh, and then they are all dry treated with quartermaster uh, and a uh, a sealant Teat dip uh, and move to the move to the dry cow pen. We don't use any internal sealants. Uh, 
we don't we we talked about doing some testing to to, to try and reduce the amount of dry cow treatment we use, um, but we couldn't quite figure out how to do it from a logistical standpoint. Uh, so we just we've continued to do blanket dry cow treatment. Okay, did you, um, we had comments that they look to be giving quite a bit of milk at the end. So are you using teat sealants? No, but, but just by, by doing that, that change in, in number of milkings per day and the change in diet, we can take these cows that are still doing, you know, 80, 90 pounds of milk. And within two, two or three days, they will be down to 20 pounds. Okay, um, terrific. Um, Bill, did you, uh, Bill or Elena, any questions in this area? Just um, a question. Do you optimize for amino acids during the close-up? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, if we want to go into that, I'll, I'll, I'll show the, the current close-up diet. Uh, while we're doing that, we did have an, a question, energy density of in the close-up diet and fresh cows and other nutrients, similar question. So Tom, if you want to do a share of your screen. I will. I, will. I think you can do that. Okay. Uh, so let me just make sure. I think I have to stop my share. This may take you a minute to launch the program. No, I, I was expecting this. So I've actually got it up. Ah, so wise. And yeah, you're not, I can't share. All right, I'm going to stop my share. Ah, there we go. Perfect. Okay. So this is my current uh, pre-fresh diet. A uh, little bit of straw, uh, so about two kilos dry matter, uh, about four kilos dry matter corn silage, uh, Four, just about four kilos of, of that dry cow heifer grass silage. Uh, again, that's about 65% NDF. Uh, a little bit of ground corn. And then uh, this, this pre-fresh mix, which is there's just a little bit of distillers in there as a carrier. Um, this is the only diet that I still have a little bit of animal protein in. Uh, you'll see some smart amine in there. Uh, and then there's uh, the Essentium. Uh, the, this Aminomax PF is, is a DCAD product. Um, so I'm right, I balance right as close to energy balance as I can. Uh, try and get up over 1300 grams of metabolizable protein. I uh, run my lysine and methionine just like I was going to formulate for lactating cow. Uh, so I'm using them in relation to energy. Uh, so that that is a pretty common uh, to me these, these close-up dry cow diets are actually pretty easy. Uh, adequate, adequate amounts of forage NDF as a percent of body weight, uh, adequate levels of MP, uh, formulate for uh, 
at least methionine. Uh, where possible, uh, I'll, I'll use menensin. The only two diets I use menensin in are close up and fresh. And then I'll, I'll manipulate DCAD uh, so that, uh, you know, we've got this milk fever risk prediction. As long as I'm around that a half a percent potential milk risk prediction, and then I watch the cows. The other one that I watch closely is fermentable starch. I'm trying to keep my fermentable starch number uh, four or five points uh, lower than the fresh cow diet. Uh, and and I, I really believe now after implementing this where we're, I definitely did see a fresh cow performance improvement uh, so I'm still energy controlled, relatively high fill, uh, but still supplying enough fermentable starch that that rumen's ready to go when, when they go, go over to a, uh, 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 the, the fresh diet. <clears throat> so they go from this diet to This diet, uh, heavy corn silage. Um, this protein mix is basically minerals, bypass protein, some bakery, uh, some bypass fats, uh, and then both some smart amino M and some some ML uh, to go after the lysine. And my fermentable starch goes up to nineteen point six. Um, and you'll see where my amino acids are. Uh, and I go, so they go really quick from a negative DCAD to a positive DCAD. Uh, I become more and more convinced that that's really important in these lactating cows is to be at least positive 300. Um, and, and all of these, all of these things, when we put them together, they, they just come through these transition periods, not really wanting any help. Um, simple diets, you know, there, there's nothing really, you, you know, you'll see no other additives. There's no, uh, there's, there's nothing. It, it's just applying nutrients. Any questions on that? Um, I'm looking through our chat and our questions. Um, I have a question. Good, thank you, Elena. <laughs> yeah, do they eat? Do they eat it all? So they hike. Uh, yeah, the fresh cows. Uh, the fresh cows right now, and, and it's so hard because of how dynamic that pen is, mm -hmm. as to what actual intakes are. Uh, but I can tell you, if you give me a second, I will bring up. I was looking at the PNDF, and I was wondering if that can, uh, you know, limit. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll come back to that. So, right now, we are offering 
either fresh recipe, um, Yeah, that would be right. Yeah, they're they're being offered that that fifty three pounds. Nice. Uh, and it's not you know you saw how long you know we've got cows in there that are forty fifty days in milk. So, mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm glad to see it's actually there because they, they better that pen better be up at that level. Um, we feed we feed once a day and we feed for uh, three to five percent refusals. Okay. Um, while we're discussing the frequency of feeding, um, in your opinion, how does the frequency of feeding per day affect intake and milk yield? Um, this is assuming the aerobic stability of the TMR is not an issue. Would more feedings a day result in more milk per cow? <laughs> that's, that's from um, Mar Marcos down in Brazil. That, that's actually a, a great question because everyone assumes that if we feed cows more frequently, that, that intake goes up. And, and the data that's out there, it's a little bit mixed, um, but in general, as, again, as Marco said, as long as that silage is stable and, and we're not getting heating during in the feed bunk during the day, there's very little difference between once a day and twice a day feeding. But then as you start increasing the number of feeding intervals after that, intake actually goes down. Uh, it's, it, it's been measured with that to do that in several studies. Uh, and these were, were primarily behavior and time management studies. And, and what, what we found was it interferes with resting time. So those cows, the, their main trigger of a new meal is the delivery of fresh feed. So it's disrupting their rest time and, and they come up, they eat faster and, and then they, they wanna go lay down. And as a result, their total eating time's higher per day, but their total intake and their total milk is actually lower. I think, I think we're looking into some of those um, behavior studies for next year's topics, aren't we, Tom? I, I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we were going to work with some of the people up at Liner with that. Cool. Yeah. Um, while we're right here in the program, I've got some questions in my window about various aspects of the diet. So I'm assuming that this question is with regards to this fresh cow diet. I've got two. Um, one is, would you like to get the sugar up to five or six percent? And then think also, um, what are your thoughts and reasonings on adding calcium sulfate as well as limestone to the fresh cow diet? Um, you know, I, I, when I looked at this and I saw the calcium sulfate, I was like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that's there. Uh, <laughs> Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it might have. I think it might have been uh, just just as, as a a, uh, a filler there, or, or maybe maybe I had a, a self respect in there as well, and that was how the how the premix company, the mineral company, formulated it. Um, there, there's no there's no rhyme or reason as to why I would have 
specifically select cal sulfate unless i was going after a sulfur spec um sugars you know i have mixed feelings on on, on sugars uh i i've gone high sugars i've gone low sugars uh, for me for, for where we are in the northeast uh u.s sugar is expensive uh it, it, it's extremely it's it, it's considerably more you know the price of molasses is considerably more than the price of corn up here uh i i try to use uh that's why the bakery byproduct is in there that's why that chocolate's in there it's actually a chocolate cookie candy byproduct uh, I, I try to bring it up uh, but at the same time trying to keep an eye on cost uh, and and with all of the really good fermentable starch sources that 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 I've got in here uh, the, the worst quality fermentable starch that I have in here is the, the ground corn uh, everything else is pretty high starch digestibility so I, I would love to try and, and increase sugars, but boy, I'm awful scared to given what the costs are. So this would be an entirely different examination and maybe someplace like the Midwest where they have all the beet production, you're saying? Where yeah, they have or, those or, or in the west, Or in the West or Southwest where they feed a lot of alfalfa hay. Gotta remember, I'm, I don't have any dry forage in here. Everything's fermented. You know, if, if I could take that, that, that uh, alfalfa silage and, and switch that to alfalfa hay at the same dry matter amount and, and the same with the second cut grass, you know, suddenly my sugars would, would be up uh, probably three points. Uh, so it, it's, it's a challenge with, with all fermented feeds and uh, what's locally available from an a economic standpoint. Ah, nice segue. So your metabolism, uh, um, methionine to ME ratio is 1.26. And that appears to be there's a fair amount of um, smartamine in the diet. The economics of that, how, how does that play out for you? Uh, uh, well, okay, so that's the fresh diet. Let me show you the diet I formulate off of, which is that old cow pen. Uh, excellent, because I have questions about the high cow diet too. <laughs> uh, so here, here's that old cow pen and I'm 1.24, okay? Um, I used to tell people 1.15, but then Van Amberg went through and reevaluated that that 1.15 is really for version seven of the model. Uh, for the version of the biology that we have, we should be uh, around 1.2. Um, if we just look at it from a milk protein uh, response, uh, the economics are still positive. I, I, as long as milk protein is over a buck ninety a pound, uh, or 
Um, four four eighteen a kilo. Uh, supplementing with methionine is, is a positive return on investment. But if we look at the responses in Fresh Cow Health, uh, Repro, all of this work that's been done on, on methionine in the last several years, showing improvements in, in health and Repro, uh, I don't bring it out. Uh, I talked about it one time with the farm when protein price was like a buck 50 and they told me don't even think about it uh, because they've seen the, 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 uh, the improvements in, in overall cow health and repro. All right, um, before I ask some more questions, Elena, Bill, Sean, anything? Oh, Elena mentioned about the PENDF. Yes. Um, so let's see, the high cow diet here, I'm 22. The fresh cow diet, I'm probably a little bit lower. Uh, yeah, um, what I've been watching more recently is actually the, the PECHOC. Uh, that's based on some work out of minor. Uh, and, and it really comes back to a balance between ensuring that we have enough physically effective fiber in there, but that we don't have too much indigestible fiber in there uh, because then we get rumen fill issues. Uh, so in, in high producing herds, early lactation groups, I may be down as low as 18.5% PENDF, uh, but then that'll be 22, 23 in late lactation. Uh, in, in general, acidosis is a problem in low producing cows. Uh, that's where we'll typically see it first unless there's a really major screw up in the diet. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely let these early lactation cows, just because of their rate of intake and, and what that does to passage rate, uh, I'll let them have, a, I'll run a little bit lower PENDFs and, and then watch the cows. I, that's, no matter what I do, you know, I, I'm always, I, I'm most happy when I'm walking cows or sitting in a feed bunk. I love sitting in a feed bunk watching cows eat. That, that tells me so much about what's going on on the farm and the diets. Well, I think we talked about the idea that we would do more in-depth type discussions, um, maybe group by group next year for some of our webinars. So that would be a great opportunity. Well, the, the, the thing is that you brought that up, Marianne, because someone made a comment that, that you know, it only covered half of what we said it would. Um, and, and you're right. When, when I originally had this idea, it was going to be a walk through the dairy and then also how I evaluated dairy. And, and then it occurred to me that to try to do all of that in an hour is impossible. Yeah. Um, typically, even when I do tours of the farm uh, live, we usually spend at least half a day 
so th this was, I want everyone to think of this as an introduction to the farm and then we're going to use it more over the next year going through some of those topics. Yeah, I, I think that people will really enjoy that. Just given our questions, they're so specific in certain areas that if we can have a talk on each one of those areas and really dig down, I think people will enjoy it. Um, please, anybody who's listening, feel free to email us and let us know what areas you're, you're especially interested in. Um, I'm going to move to another question while we're on this high group diet. Um, what is, and this is from Marcos, what's the protein profile of the high group TMR um, in terms of crude protein, MP, allowable milk, lysine, methionine, RDP balance, or ammonia as a percent of the requirement? And what is the MUN of the herd? Okay, so everything right there is, you can see on the screen, uh, crude protein of the diet, 16.8, which is higher than I normally run. Uh, that's just because of the grass silage and alfalfa silage qualities right now. Uh, MP, I, I'm uh, a couple kilos higher in MP allowable milk than ME allowable. Uh, ammonia, 150% of requirement. Uh, and, and that's not planned. So again, that's based on the silages. Uh, RUP, RDP, I don't even look at. Um, if we look at where we are with uh, MUNs on the whole herd, uh, let me, I'm not gonna guess. I'll just bring up uh, the report quick. So over the last four weeks, uh, MUN has varied between 8.9 and there's an 11.8 uh, from a month ago. Uh, the last week we've averaged probably about 9.5. Sounds good. <laughs> and, and that's with milk fat averaging about 3.6, 3.65, and milk true protein close to 3.1. Okay. Um, this, this brings a question. Where is the milk primarily going to? Is it a fluid market or are they making yogurt or cheese or anything with it? The vast majority of our milk, or I, I think all of it, goes for uh, goes for yogurt. Okay, interesting. Um, while while we're on the pro the topic of milk, and then we'll go back to diets a bit. Um, do you think that milk processors are going to dictate your need to reduce um, perhaps dry cow treating in the future? Um, no. I don't, I, maybe, mm -hmm. in the, when, who knows, um, I think there will be a lot of pushback by um, the vet community if, if that tries to get pushed through too hard. 
What do you say, Bill? Well, Bill, unfortunately, Bill Bill had to leave. Bill um, had to leave. Okay. It would be interesting to get his take on that. Um, I think, yeah, some of it's going to depend on whether it's science-driven or opinion-driven. Um, and unfortunately, we have to be aware of, of being responsive to the latter as much as the former. Um, back to diets. <laughs> Do you typically formulate for high, high ME and MP as a percent of required? If yes, thoughts on why? I don't. I, I actually try and formulate. Um, I always try initially and, and make the model match what the herds act or the group is actually doing. Uh, and then I look for opportunities. Uh, you know, if there's a, something glaring that suddenly I'm seven pounds high on MPL album milk, then it'll be okay, can I increase ME or can I decrease MP and maybe save some cost? I'm always challenged, but the, the protein side's easy. Uh, I'm always challenged on trying to get more energy into these girls. Uh, and I, that's true for any cow. Um, Elena, I don't mean to be hogging the questions. Do you have any to throw in? I'm, I've got a ton. Say that again, Marianne, sorry. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I don't mean to be monopolizing the question period. Do you have any that you would like to ask? Um, I still have a bunch to go to, so. Um, oh, you go ahead, Marianne, don't worry. Okay, all right. Um, so while we're talking a little bit about milk fat, I've got a couple questions on um, your, your, your ratio of fatty acids. So can you share your goals in C16, C18, one ratio for the diet? Ah, huh. Okay. So there, there's really um, three numbers that I, that I look at, uh, yeah, maybe four, uh, when I'm thinking about trying to manipulate milk fat. Uh, PENDF, uh, starch fermentability, the methionine balance, and then that C16, well, a couple there with fatty acids. Uh, I always watch that, that C18-3 intake uh, and try and keep that below 85 grams. Uh, that's based on some, uh, some experience and some discussions with, with Lou Armitano over the years. Uh, but then Adam Locke's work uh, has been playing with the 16 to 18 one ratio uh, and playing around with that. And I try to keep that ratio at least 1.5 to one. Uh, I just made a change. I was, uh, they'll be fed this diet actually Thursday uh, when we get a new load of grain. Um, I've been as low as 1.4, and I think that's cost me a little bit of fat. Uh, I'll let you know next week <laughs> if we get a positive response. Uh, and then decab. Um, again, that, that at least 300, preferably over 350. Um, I think the combination of, of those points uh, allows me to manipulate milk fat 
pretty reliably uh, to a point where another fire my feed told me, I don't know what it is, but you say that we're gonna that you're gonna increase milk fat, and you do now, and it's never never used to be that way, and it's we've just learned that much more about fat responses in cows the last ten years. I and I would refer to some of that research that Adam Locke's group's doing in our February webinar um, that was discussed. Do you have? Um, can you share some of the palmitic steric fat sources that you would? Um, advise adding? Um, there's so many different ones around the world. Uh, you know, my go-to is always um, uh, one of the calcium salts if I need to be bringing in 18.1. Um, and and those would be driven by, by a few companies. Um, the palmitic, the high palmitic sources, um, I think there's even more choices of them out there now. Uh, I'm not gonna name brand names because there's just way too many of them to, to start thinking about. Um, I look at, at price, I look at quality, consistency and quality. Um, and, and that's about it. Okay. Uh, th thank you. Um, question that just came in and then I want to go back, I'll go back to a little bit more of the w ones that I've had hanging out there. Um, can you speak about how important the cattle description and, and also we've got a lot of questions about, um, use of scale weights, how often and when, so address that then. Um, in this high pen at 100 pounds of milk, the cattle description, description looks to be mid-80s. Dry matter is overfed by five pounds. Um, 118 and 120% of MEMP requirement no, comments oh, on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, all right. Isn't there a tree option you should be using? <laughs> Let's bring up those old cows. Uh, I think I might have been playing, showing some people some stuff. Let's make that 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 uh, that group's actually averaging probably around there and there. So let's see what that tells us. What that tells us for. I had to be showing somebody stuff because I don't. My inputs are usually much better than that. Yeah, it's a little bit of practice what we preach. Yeah, there, that's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hell. Um, so, okay, so I try and do, whenever I do a major formulation change, or going to, you know, if, if it's something minor where I'm gonna pull out you know, a pound of corn silage and go in with a pound of pound more of alfalfa silage for inventory stuff like that. I, I typically won't look at the cattle inputs, um, but at least once a quarter, I will go through and 
make and make the model predict as close as possible to what the group's actually doing. Uh, and that 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 my biggest problem is we are not on DHI, uh, so I don't have individual fat and proteins. Uh, so my components are are inputted based on what the tank average is and then thinking about the stage of lactation of the group as to where they would be on those like on those uh, component curves. Uh, but I have decent dry matter intake numbers uh, and we've got daily milk rates. I've got really good milk rates. Uh, so, so that gives me, if, if I spend the time cleaning up some of these inputs better, uh, I'll be within half a pound of, of energy allowable milk to ver versus what the group's actually doing. And again, I try to do that at least once a quarter. Okay, uh, thank you. And yeah, that's a good, a really good illustration of the importance of animal inputs, um, how much that changed. Tom, can you address sort of at what critical points are you doing those body weight measurements and great to have scales on the farm? Oh, okay, I've got three sets of scales. I've got, so I get body weights, um, birth, sometime soon after weaning, six months, first asterisk, first breeding, and, the, and then six to eight weeks pre-calving. Uh, I wish I could get weights consistently on cows, uh, but we don't have the infrastructure to do that. Um, if I could at least get body weights on fresh cows, I would be ecstatic. Uh, but I don't. Uh, body body weight's crit of critical input. So th this is kind of, uh, you know, in, in the past I, I've weighed some cows and, and those are kind of what, what I, how I've ended up with the mature weights that I use uh, and then do some calculations based on uh, what stage of what stage of lactation, what parity, uh, to try and get some estimates. Um, what I really look at is if I know my milk, and if I know my dry matter intake, and if they're lining up, if that predicted intake is lining up, you know, pretty close, let's say within five percent, um, then I know my body weight's uh, a realistic number. Uh, because th those intake equations are basically body weight and fat corrected milk. Uh, so I, I kind of use that predicted intake versus my actual intakes as an internal check to what my inputted body weight is. Have you found um, that you've had to increase the body weights on the herd as you've improved the um, young animal protocols? No, it, okay. it's more of a just an overall change in the genetic base um, over the last 25 years. Okay. Hmm. Um, a question, and this is from Charlie, but I believe he has left the webinar. So we actually can address this um, in a response to him via email, but this is also um, bypass fat 
fed to which animals to lead to improved pregnancy rates? Yep, that's the Essentium product. Okay. You may have answered that when I was looking at other things. Um, unless I get some more questions in our chat and our Q&A, I'm going to save some of these that I have relative to um, Mar Marcos for the evening webinar because it's, it's um, getting on towards 1130. <laughs> and, um, it's going to be a long webinar tonight too. So unless you have, if, unless we get any other closing statements, poor Elena had to leave because I think it's late over there. Um, oh, we've got another meeting that, that actually started 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, Bill popped <laughs> off and yeah, so um, anybody that will, will have more questions tonight, if anybody wants to pop in towards the end, just ask questions, um, feel free. So do you have some questions you want to start off yes. with? Yes. Okay. I have a lot. All right. Well, why don't we do... Obviously. <laughs> oh, I knew you would. Um, why don't we do a few with you? Um, Marcelo, if you have questions, Sean, same thing. And then we'll come back to me with the questions I have. So go, go to it, Paula. Okay, the first one. Uh, the high moisture corn you showed us is snaplage. Can you right. tell something about it? So we finish harvesting uh, silage and, and we switch the heads to a, a, a silage head to just a regular combine harvester head and, and go right back out. So it's the same equipment, it's the same harvester just a different head. So we're taking the whole ear along with the husk and the cob. So it's about 60% year in, year out, Paula, it's about 60, 62% uh, starch. How is that on moisture for packing? It is, it, it's, it's wild. Year in, year out, it's about uh, 60 dry matter. I, I also, um, Paula, not to jump into yours, but I'm just checking. I had some questions about snaplage, and I want to get to that while we are, unless it just was answered. Um, how is the effectiveness of the fiber in the snaplage relative the, to the fiber in corn silage, alfalfa, and straw? I never think about snaplage as providing much PENDF. Um, and, and actually, Marianne, if I can take over the screen. Yep. Um, let me see if I need to give you permission. You do. All right. Um, I'm going to stop my share. And there you go. There we go. So let's see. Let's take a look. Uh, let's go to the high cow diet. And I'll be nice. I'll even switch to metric for everyone. Uh, so I'm feeding about Come on. Uh, so 2.3 kilos of dry matter of that snaplage and it is providing me with, come on, I got too many recipe screens open. I was trying to be clever. Oh, yeah, it's, it's only supplying 4%, 4.8% of the total PENDF. 
It's given that the particle size of, of, the, of the husk that's coming through, yeah, what it looks like, if you look at it up close, it looks like really high grain corn silage or really dirty high moisture corn, uh, really trashy. Um, that, that husk, yeah, there's, there, there can be a fair amount of the husk there. Uh, and, and then uh, the cob itself, and, and the beauty of, of, especially the cob is it's very fermentable fiber. Uh, doesn't supply a lot. I, I don't even think about it when I'm thinking about PENDF. Okay, thank, thank you. Um, Paula, do you wanna keep on questioning? Paula always doing Yes, that. yes, I'm here. Okay, good, good. <laughs> Okay, uh, so the, the second question is, to monitor hyper growth, what do you recommend in terms of weight measurements, frequency? And do you sample uh, some hyphers? Uh, do you take the mean? How much variation do you expect in the groups? Wow, uh, I wish I had graphs of those. Um, so we have three sets of scales for heifers. Uh, and if I had to request specific time points that I would want weights on, they would be birth, weaning, breeding, and four to eight weeks pre-calving. Uh, that I can pretty well uh, give an idea, have a good idea of the overall heifer program. We do every animal. Um, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great tool because there's been some heifers that we've looked at that we've decided they're not going to stay based on their growth performance. Uh, scales are relatively cheap. And every farm should have a couple sets. Uh, I, I am a, a huge believer in, in scales on farms. Great, great, Paula, keep going. Okay. Uh, how frequently are cows regrouped? And do you feed different groups with different diets? <laughs> okay, so cows will come into the fresh group. Uh, when they exit the fresh group, they will go to uh, a pen really based upon their, parent, their lactation number. Um, some cows will never leave that group until dry off. Uh, if we look at our first calf heifer pen, um, just because of pressure and number of animals, they tend to move to the next pen, which is with older animals at about 180, 200 days in milk. Uh, we've got this, this late lactation group that is a mix of multiple parodies and 
they some cows will move into that pen some cows won't it all depends on on over on population dynamics if we need room in specific pens i do do different diets for first calf animals then there's the high cow diet and then there's the late lactation diet they are all pretty similar uh, and we can get away with that because of how short our calving interval is. We're less than 13 months. We're like 12.5, 12.4 months calving intervals. Uh, so it, it's as long as the cows maintain the level of production they're at, over-conditioned cows are few and far between. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, Marcelo or Sean, I'm going to give you a chance to ask some questions while I um, work on some questions that I've got and um, Paula. Yes, so Marcelo or Sean, do you, Sean, you're unmuted. You go first. Okay. Um, hi, Tom. Hi. Yeah, uh, that's a great uh, um, webinar or video. Very nice. I still try to I'm working on the translation into Chinese. Um, it, it, take, it takes me quite a while. Anyway, it's very good, thank you. Uh, first, I have a, just a comment. It's about silage. Uh, you know, I am, I'm selling an oxygen barrier film. I noticed, you know, in the silage pile, you used uh, the black white covered um, the top yeah. looks great I think you guys already did a uh, doing a great job but uh, we, we have been you know doing this one for a few years and we, we run many trials and uh, the ROI is very positive I, I you know just guys give it a try cover maybe half a bunker and take a look next year and uh, you will be impressed I so much want to try it. Uh, yeah. Every year that it, that um, uh, things look decent in the beginning of the year yeah. in milk price, and then it crashes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and also I noticed that um, the age. You know, every time you open the bunker, now on the top you cut the plastic. You know it's okay to cut a little bit more. Then that's okay. But once you cut it, uh, what uh, the the the, pl the edge of the plastic should be tightly sealed. You know sometimes you you open the bunker it looks great, then you start using that. But when you you use more and more, then you you realize every time you open the plastic, it it looks worse. The reason is. Um, you open plastic, you don't cover that edge. People ignore about that. That will be a, a, a place where the air keep goes into the silage. And every time you put another two or three meter, you yep. realize you will see it's get get worse and worse. It's not as good as you that first time you open the bunker. Maybe you think, well, it's after a few months, but it's not about time. It's about covering. You always keep the edge sealed completely, and it will help too. Yeah, yep. uh, it's just a comment. Uh, I, I noticed you are using a protein blend. 
Yes. You, you blend that on farm or you ask some feed mills to blend that? No, we, we buy that from a, from a feed company. It, yeah. The blend that I put together and uh, we, it, we, we get it delivered once a week. Yeah, uh, that's, that's great. Yeah. Sean, not to interrupt, okay. but while we're looking at this diet, I did have a quick question. Does the soy in the recipe stand for soybean or soybean meal? So, uh, the soy? Uh, yeah, that's listed in this recipe we're looking at. The soybean meal. Okay, thank you. Uh, go ahead, Sean. Okay, uh, uh, let me, uh, last question, I leave the, I believe uh, uh, my other question will be covered later, maybe asked by other people. But uh, there's one question about a milk replacer. You said you, you, you formulated a milk replacer, really different different from most of commercial products because mm -hmm. you said that it's very close to whole milk. Um, so is it uh, competitive? You know, in, in China, sometimes when the milk price become very like low and some dairy farms just go ahead, get a, you know, make, convert them, their milk to milk powder, they stock it um, because it just uh, doesn't make sense to sell the liquid milk. Uh, price is sometimes is very low. So in that case, you would then later on, they use this milk powder and to feed uh, uh, calves. It, well, okay, there's one thing with that, and that is how long does it sit in storage before they use it? Because the EU a couple of years ago went to, uh, when was it 2015 when milk price really collapsed? Yeah. They purchased millions of liters of milk and made it all into powder. And yeah. it all went into storage and yes, yes. they started releasing that all and it was being used for milk replacer after two years, two, two to three years. And it was terrible. The digestibility yeah. was horrendous because of their, how fast they dried it and then sitting in storage that long. Uh, yeah. We look at when the milk replacer that we have made, uh, the shelf life, the tag shelf life on it is a year, and we don't like to see any of it sitting in inventory greater than six months. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, some farmers are complaining. They, they, they said they bought, they bought this milk powder and then you know, the, the calves performs badly and poorly. Yes. So yes. maybe that's the reason. So, so with the protein and energy or fat very close to, to whole milk, uh, then you also add the add those minerals and other things. Correct. Which Correct. which which suppose could should be higher than what's in whole milk powder. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. okay. Uh, Sean, yeah. while we're discussing um, Tom, while we're discussing a little bit about calves, I had a question from Marcos. Um, he's asking what, how much milk are you feeding per calf? Is it fixed or a variable volume? And what are your weaning criteria? Okay. Yeah. Our weaning criteria is very simple. Day of age. Um, okay. our, our milk feeding is this. The first three feedings of life are colostrum. And then from the fourth feeding through day 21 of life, they are fed 
three quarts of milk in the morning, two quarts of milk replacer at noon, and three quarts of milk in the evening. From day 22 to day 48, it's four quarts of milk, two quarts of milk replacer, four quarts of milk. So in total, we're doing eight and then 10, 10 quarts a day. Okay, thank you. Um, unless, I'm, I'm gonna ask a quick question that you already answered, but we're gonna share it with the class. Um, this was a question on um, dairy comp, best commands or graphs to see how a herd is doing as far as early milk production performance. Yeah, that, 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 that's, a, that's a little bit of a tough question. Uh, it really depends, every, every one has their ideas of how to do this. To me, it, it depends on, do I have daily milk weights or not? Uh, if all I have are, are test day data, then it, it's gonna be a lot more difficult to, to, to really look at this. With daily milk weights, I, in agriculture, I, I learned this, it took me a few years to learn this, working with this farm. Uh, one brother is very graphically oriented. The other brother is tabular oriented. So I, I would show a graph in, of how cows were doing. And then one brother picked up on it right away and was and understood. The other brother sat there looking at me like I was from Mars. Uh, me personally, I'm a, I'm a graphic person. Uh, so I tend to generate those graphs uh, that'll be like graph, uh, well, for us with daily milk weights, it'll be graph MF by days in milk for lact equals one. And, and I'm just looking at the shape of the curve. And what I look at more is the outliers. Why do we have this subpopulation that, that's low, low in the graph? Um, if I wanted to generate a table, then, I, then I'll do things like I'll create some items in dairy comp to look at uh, maybe day seven, day 14, day 28 milk, uh, and capture the seven day milk averages on those. Um, and and I, I'm, I watch heifers, I watch our heifers quite closely. So I'll be looking at uh, what is their performance in relation to the mature herd at various stages of lactation to see if they're like 80, 82% production level of, of what the mature cows are doing, um, especially at, at peak and, and a little bit before peak. Um, but, but generally, I, I just watch the shape of those graphs. I, it's, it's hard to explain to, to and I'm looking at the slopes. I just have this, this visual idea in my mind of, of what slopes should look like and, and uh, and what the relationships between the different parities, uh, what I'm looking for. I, I, I can't really explain it beyond that. Okay, thank you. Thank you for elaborating on that. Um, Paula, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to ask some questions if you would okay. like or, okay, good, go. And if, I, and if it's on a like... topic that I have some of, I will possibly butt in, okay? Okay, perfect, okay. 
can you tell us what nutritional strategies you use to mitigate heat stress? <laughs> um, none really. I, I, I will, the, the one thing that I'll watch more closely during heat stress is DCAD. Uh, and if possible, I'll try and bring potassiums up higher. Um, but beyond that, I don't change my diets. I used to, a long time ago, I used to make some adjustments, you know, maybe decrease fiber a little bit, increase fat some. And I was never satisfied with how the, how the responses were. Uh, so to me, it, it's very much, I will formulate those diets to maintain room and health. Uh, and anything that we can do to stimulate intake, it, it comes much more down to what is the farm going to do for cooling for heat stress abatement uh, and uh, ensuring that, that the feed in front of the cows uh, stays fresh, doesn't heat, does no secondary fermentation. Uh, if they can, if, if we can control that, we can do and, and pick up one to two kilos of dry matter intake during heat stress, we're going to be way better off than, than manipulating the diet. Okay, great. Uh, Tom, what is your feed efficiency goal? Do you consider milk solids to do the calculations? Okay, well, we, we, there, there's two separate questions. One is, uh, our goal is to always be over six pounds of solids per cow per day. So that would be, what, 2.8 kilos of solids per cow? Um, because that's how we're paid for milk. We are, we are paid uh, per kilo of fat, per kilo of protein, and, and actually extra water is a cost for us. Uh, in terms of feed efficiency, I never look at feed efficiency. I don't know of any farm, any farm in the world that can really tell me what real dry matter intake is. Uh, and, and then if you look at, uh, there's so many things that impact that feed efficiency number. What's the average days in milk of the, of the herd? Uh, what's, what's the, uh, uh, what's the somatic cell? What, what's the days pregnant? What's, are we gaining or losing body condition score? What number do you want? I, I, I actually put together a whole spreadsheet to calculate feed efficiency, taking into account like eight different variables to make an adjusted number. And, and sorry, I, I, I'm not a, a, a proponent of tracking feed efficiency on cows. If someone does, absolutely, you've got to do it on an energy corrected milk basis. Okay, perfect. I will go on with a fresh cow question. You told us they are 35 to 50 days in the fresh pen. No, that's a lie. The that, 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 that'd be the average. They're, 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 they tend to be in there longer. Which is the criteria? 
to move the cows. Space. To, for them to stay there. Okay. Space. Pure and simply, how many fresh cows do we have coming in and how much room do we have in that pen? Okay, which is a, <laughs> no, I'm looking at, I have many questions and I'm trying to ask you the, the same kind of questions. Okay, this is, which is a starch value you use in the fresh and high cow diet? Ah, <laughs> um, I, my thinking on this has evolved over the last few years. I don't look at the total starch level that much anymore. I'm watching the fermentable starch much more closely. Uh, so as an example, uh, on this, on the fresh diet, I'm about 19.6% fermentable starch. Uh, and I'm only 20, 26% starch uh, because of all that, that fully fermented corn silage and the, uh, the fermented uh, snaplage. Uh, the, the high cow diet goes up to, I think, a little over 20% fermented fermentable starch. Uh, from starch, yeah, 20.8. Uh, and it's 28% starch. So by watching that fermentable starch on the Fresh and high cow diets, I'll be 19 and to 21% fermentable starch. Late lactation, I'll drop that number to 19, 19 and a half. Uh, and then on the close-up diet, th this is a big one. I, I really watch the fermentable starch on the close-up diet and try to keep it no more than four points, four or five points lower than the fresh diet. So in this case, um, if I go back to the fresh, I'm 19.6 fermentable starch. And on my close up diet, I'm actually 17.6. And yet it's still a relatively high fill controlled energy diet. Perfect. Okay. Paula? Yes. I have a few questions on particle sizes that I want to lump together. Shall I ask those okay. and then give you another go? All right. Okay. Yes. Perfect. All right. So um, the first one is what is the optical? optimal particle size for ground corn in terms of microns and what is a respective sieve opening diameter on a hammer mill? Oh, um, screen sizes on the hammer mill, I don't know. Um, the, all of the, the data, and, and this would be data out of, out of um, Wisconsin, out of, from Randy Shaver, that, that with dry corn, one, as long as we're below a mean particle size of 1200 microns, there's really little difference in, in starch digestibility in cows. Uh, if we grind it really, if we grind it finer, let's say like 800 microns, uh, all the work shows that 
We really don't get a milk response. The only thing that we see is we go from being able to see corn particles in the manure to not being able to visu visibly see the corn particles in the manure. The starch is still there. Okay, um, staying with particle size, but sort of switching um, feed ingredients. What are your goals on corn silage processing, particle size of fiber and starch damaging, and how is it monitored on the farm? How does that affect the corn silage feed values for diet formulation? These are from Marcos. Okay, my, so, our corn silage particle size that we're, our theoretical length of cut is nineteen millimeter. Um, and the kernel processing, uh, the person operating the harvester, uh, who's one of the junior partners, is supposed to stop. Uh, and evaluate that when they go into when they start new fields, uh, and and we're using the, the the pioneer recommendations basically of taking a liter cup of of corn silage, and we should only see we should see no more than one whole kernel in that, and 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 like one or two halves, um, and we adjust that processor. That, that, that processor is getting adjusted multiple times a day as they go across fields. Okay. Now, um, do you, I think you said no, but um, do you use an inoculant on corn silage? On the corn silage, we do not. Okay. On the, on the snaplage, we do. And on the uh, alfalfa silage, we do. Okay. Um, what are your particular particle size goals for the straw that you're using in the farm and can it be regulated in the equipment for chopping uh -huh. so the, the the chopper that we use for the straw is actually uh I, you know i said in the video i was going to say what it was and then i never showed it right john um, noticed I, I, I forgot <laughs> yeah yeah um it is actually, just hold on a second here, and I will share. Go. It's a it's a hay buster, and we've got two size screens for it. Uh, one is a large uh, large screen that that we use for bedding and it chops hay to a really nice, uh, a small particle size. Uh, if we chop straw with it, it's just way too long. So we got a smaller screen. I think it's, I think it's 45 millimeter uh, hole size on that screen. And we consistently get uh, no particles, no, no straw particles that are longer than uh, 40 millimeters. Okay. Well, thank thank you, Paula. I'm going to let you talk, and then we'll have we have some questions. Um, we have a, some questions on heifer growing. So, Paula, yes. why don't you ask some questions, and we'll go back to that. 
Okay, I, I have both. So I will start with the cows uh, questions. Okay. Which is the C16 to C18 ratio you look for to increase milk fat to 3.7? Ah, so. When I want to, when I'm manipulating milk, when I want to manipulate milk fat, I'm actually looking at four things. Um, PENDF, but not so much anymore. Um, the total grams of intake of 18.3. Now, try really hard to keep that below 85 grams. The starch, ferment, the fermentable starch, uh, it, and I can see it uh, on another farm that I work with. Uh, the fermentable starch went up to 21.5 and we lost three points of milk fat. Uh, DCAD, I, I, I become a huge proponent of, of keeping DCADs at a minimum of a positive 300 on lactating cows. Uh, and then I'll look, I'll, I'll look at the C16 to 18-1 ratio, and my target is to be greater than 1.5 to 1. And 1.7, 1.8, uh, I think seems to give, give a little bit more consistency. Uh, we'll see that this diet here is 1.77. The cows saw this diet for the first time today. Uh, just because of some forage changes, I had dropped to 1.4. And between those forage changes and this change and, and the change in the, the ratio, we lost a couple points in fat. So ask me next week if the cows responded. Okay, I will. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Okay, what do you think about feeding a 7% sugar diet, a TMR, when you have variable starch because corn silage is from various sources? That can work very well. Uh, I have fed as high as 11% uh, sugar diets. Uh, and Obviously, the starch levels on those diets were in the 18, 17% range. Um, to me, you know, I, 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 I don't really care. I, it's to me, it's what's the, the most cost effective way to get as much fermentable carbohydrates into the cow as possible. And if doing it with more sugar gives us a more consistent delivery of those fermentable carbohydrates, I'm all for it. Okay. Tom, uh, can you tell us how many feed deliveries per day you, you do for milking cows and what's the frequency of push-up? We feed once a day. And push-ups are done uh, after feeding, the first push-up is four hours later, and then it's done every two hours after that. 
Tom, you had a good discussion this morning of um, your experiences or the research on feeding frequency and dry matter intake. Would you elaborate a little? Okay, uh, so, so the data that's out there is pretty intriguing. Um, there's not much difference between once a day and twice a day feeding. But then when we go uh, for every increment of after that, unless there is a problem with the silage where, where there's secondary fermentation and heating, we actually see dry matter intake decrease. Uh, it, it's kind of counterintuitive, uh, but what it is that the cow's primary trigger to start a new meal is the delivery of fresh feed. And it's interfering if we're feeding three, four or five times a day, that's interfering with her rest time. And she changes her eating behavior, her eating time, uh, her, their, her rate of consumption, and, and that all comes at the expense of less rest. And that's why then in the, re, the net result of that is less intake. Very good. Th thanks, Tom. Um, Paula, do you want to keep going or shall I do my... Yes, I, I have a, two or three more about okay. um, cow diets, and then we can go on to high fat. All right, excellent. Okay. Go. Okay. So, uh, which is the adjusted, adjusted major weight of the herd? What am I using? What am I using? Uh, 750 kilos. Okay. And Which, I should probably sorry. increase that. I should probably increase that to 775 just because the cows are getting, continuing to get bigger. Okay, great. Uh, which is the difference in NDF between fresh and high diets? Uh, can you tell us the DCAD uh, for fresh cows? Okay, so first of all, I never look at NDF. Uh, so let's look at it. So here's the high diet and NDF is 30. Ah, surprising. And the fresh diet NDF is 31. Uh, DCAD on the fresh diet is 323. And on the high diet it is 311. Okay, perfect. And I have uh, the last one, uh, which is the association between sugar content and fat milk, uh, milk fat. The data that I'm aware of uh, and this would have been from Glenn Broderick in late 90s, I think, or early 2000s that he did that trial, uh, where he titrated different levels of sugar into a diet. And the maximum response was around 6% sugar 
and that and that gave the highest milk and milk fat. Um, beyond that, you know, some of the data would say that, that we would see a milk fat response by increasing sugar levels. Some of the data does not. You know, I, I could I can easily say that that up until we got into heat this year, uh, with running with diets like this in the four four to five percent sugar levels, we were running milk fats around four percent uh, for well over eight months. So I, I don't know. Great. Thank you. All right. Ma Marianne, do you want to start? With yeah, I'll ask a few, a few questions. We're going to um, handle this one. Uh, doc Dr. Tom, this is from Daniel Scothorn. Yeah, I see it. He's great. Supposing there was a lack of forage related to drought on this farm, what would you replace the forage with? Would you use a byproduct or straw? What nutrients would you be paying attention to to avoid milk fat depression? <laughs> well, I can say, Daniel, that, that we did have a drought this year. <laughs> our, uh, oh, our second cut alfalfa was about 30% of normal. <laughs> Third cut was about 60% of normal. It, it's fortunately we have a lot of corn ground, so we'll just have less uh, snaplish this year, and I'll be feeding more corn silage throughout the, the year. And Tom, was straw in lesser supply for you as well? Uh, no, not for us, because we worked with a crop, a neighboring crop farmer that we buy their, we, we harvest their alfalfa and, and buy the corn from them from snaplage. So we made a deal with them that they grew wheat on some of their land on, on our land, and we got the wheat straw and they got the wheat. Because I think over by us, we were a little short on straw. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know you are. Yeah. Um, so what I've had to do in cases like that is, my God, I'll feed anything and everything I can find, be it uh, citrus pulp. Uh, we brought in cottonseed hulls, uh, wheat straw, grass, hay, uh, brewers, grains, uh, anything I can get my hands on. The biggest, the biggest problem when we get into some of these byproducts, especially heavy byproduct diets that are uh, like brewers grains, great product. Brewers grains, highly fermentable fiber, nice protein, binds everything together. Cows love it, except the particle size on all that fiber is really, really short. And if you go too high, you'd lose milk fat really quick. Um, so I, I really, when I have to go to these high byproduct, uh, yeah, these high byproduct diets, um, not only the PENDF, I'll pay even more attention to, but I will be decreasing that fermentable starch. I would, instead of running 20, 20 and a half 
20% fermentable starch. On diets like that, I may only run 18. Uh, it, it's, it's that fine balancing act of ensuring that we, that we don't push that CLA pathway. All the other nutrients I formulate like normal. I just watch that. Uh, I watch that fermentable starch more closely. Uh, when you were when you were mentioning using anything you can find, it reminds me of I think about a year ago, um, my husband knew of a big farm around here. I think I asked you about it. That was looking to use wood chips or wood. Um, yeah, and, uh, see, yeah. I, I won't go that far. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's kind of um, <laughs> that I remember asking you and you were. I, I do I do know farms that use poultry litter in heifers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Any, anything that's fermentable. I'll, let me put it that way. Anything that, that, that's fermentable, I'll try and feed. Okay. Um, Paula wants, she's got a question about metabolic problems in fresh cows. So let's pop back to cow discussion. Yes, sorry. That's no, okay. No, no, no. I, I missed it. Okay. Uh, Norberto says fresh cows are very healthy in that uh, herd. What is the main support of it? There are... There's two things. One is I can predict, I can tell you when we will have an increase in retained and metritis by looking at the population density in the close-up period. If we're overcrowded there, we definitely see an increase in, in retains and metritis. Beyond that, uh, and there's data that, that shows the same thing uh, out of uh, uh, the Animal Welfare Research Group at, up at British Columbia. Uh, they could predict uh, metritis and ketosis in these cows two weeks before calving based on their uh, eating behavior and social status within the group. And definitely overcrowding uh, made those situations worse. The other is my close-up diet is, you know, it's really simple, uh, but it's, it's really pretty focused. I, I, spend, I spend most of my time actually looking at this diet and the high-cow diet. That serves as my base for a lot of things. Um, and as well as, as body condition scores. You know, if, if I've got to deal with a group of fat, dry cows, uh, there's a couple things I'll do from a nutritional intervention uh, until we can work through and not have fat, dry cows anymore. Uh, but typically, when I do close-up diets, uh, I follow a pretty... Uh, consistent recipe. Uh, and, and this is, I, I, I see this all over, all over the world, uh, especially in areas where uh, corn silage is the predominant forage and there's not a lot of, uh, a lot of straw available or, um, 
or grass haze or whatever. Um, but I'll typically see a lot of these diets where this forage NDF as a percent of body weight is below 0.6. And, and nutritionally, if we look at the, the energy balances, protein balances, sure, on paper, we can feed these diets. And I will sit here and tell you they are cow killers. Um, it is a great way to get post-calving metabolics as well as a lot of DAs. Um, these cows, I'll do anything possible to keep the rumens full during the transition period. So my target is on these close-up cows is always to be at least 0.75% of forage NDF as a percent of body weight. Keep my energy balance as close to, to requirement as possible. Lots of MP. Uh, like I said, I keep my fermentable starch less than five points lower than the fresh cow diet. I feed methionine. Uh, I, I feed methionine at the same levels uh, as I do in the lactating cows. So this this 1.17 to 1.2 grams of, of methionine per mcal of me. Um, and I, I'll play around with the DCAD level based on where this milk fever risk is. As long as that's less than 1%, I'm pretty happy. Um, I do a, I feed menensin. The only place I feed menensin is close up and fresh. Uh, and my minerals, I sort of break lots of rules. I'm low calcium. Um, but I do mag and sulfur, I'll bring up automatically to 0.4. Uh, and then everything else is pretty much the requirement with the exception of vitamin E. Uh, I've implemented these types of, of pre-fresh diets all over the world. And the, the change in cow health and fresh cow performance uh, is frightening. Uh, they, they just come through these, these periods uh, and come in, start eating, and start milking, and it, it doesn't matter. I, I, same type of strategy for jerseys. Uh, I was working with a, with a 4,000 cow jersey herd that we implemented a diet like this, and he went through over 800 calvings in six months and had two cows he treated for clinical milk fever. And I think five cows die. Um, the, these diets are really, it took me years to dial in these diets. And once you have them dialed in like this with, uh, with the forage levels, the, the MP levels, the amino acids, uh, DCAD, they are really simple to maintain. Tom, 0.4% um, calcium in the pre-fresh diet. Yeah. Um, yeah, Paul, uh, just that's working that's, for you. Oh yeah, okay. that's actually higher than I normally would be too. Paul, Paula was Thanks. curious. <laughs> Um, let's see, while we're on diets, Paula, then I'll give it back to you. Um, 
feed additives that you're using on the farm. What what are you able to share? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'll share everything. Okay, good. Okay. So in this uh, protein protein mineral mix for the close-up cows, okay, you'll see some smartamine, some menensin, uh, some the, the, this bypass fat for repro. Uh, that's this. Uh, this is a DCAD product. It, it, it's bypass canola and ammonium chloride. Um, that's it. If we look at my high cow diet. So bicarb, I use a fair amount of bicarb. That's what I'm using to manipulate DCAD. And if we look at what's in this mix, um, so both Smartamine M and Smartamine ML to get some lysine and some high palmitic fat for the, the C16. That's it. There's no, there's no other, there's no additives. Um, what is your calcium source back on that pre-fresh diet? On that pre-fresh diet, that calcium primarily is going to be coming from background feeds. Yeah. Okay. 26% of it from the grass silage, 12% from the corn silage. Uh, let's see, 42% in there, huh? Let's see, what's in there? Oh, yeah, it'd be coming from the Essentium. That's a calcium salt. I love that question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's where, if I wasn't feeding this, just to give you an idea, if I take that out, 113 grams. Okay, my calcium goes to, yeah, 0.35%. That that's normally where I where I am. Okay. All right, Paula, do you want to keep going? Okay. Uh, my questions are multiplying. <laughs> <laughs> they are growing. Uh, okay, which is the dry matter intake for first lactation cows at peak? I don't know. I, I know what it is for the pen. Um, and that pen would be, let's see, that is, because when I formulate these diets, I look at what the intakes are per group over a week. Um, so, come on. And three is averaging. There you go, 22 kilos. Oh, okay. And now, <laughs> can you tell us Average lactation, repro calling, and replacement percentage.
Okay, let's see, let's see, let's see. This is always kind of difficult to do. do, 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 do. What do you want to know? Say that again. Uh, okay. Uh, average lactation number of okay. the herd. Hold on, hold on. Um, okay. Right now, of the mature herd, the average is 2.21. Okay. Uh, repro calling? Calling for repro issues? Yes. Oh, econ won't work. How long are you going to be here? Um, let me see. I'm trying to use. I'm I'm using the uh, the Dairy Comp uh, platform, so they don't have everything in it like they do if I was sitting at the computer. So let's see. Um, did you plot. show that in your shot? No. Um, in your no. video. Okay. Uh no. Um, Repro would probably be a third of the calls. I'm just going to guess off the top of my head. Uh, our call rate is running uh, 32 to 35%. So yeah, probably a third to half of that would, yeah, a third of that would, re would be repro. Okay, great. And the replacement percentage? So, Are you growing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're constantly growing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, let's see. Since we have 21 months age of first calving, our heifer numbers might sound a little low because it's actually less than the number of mature cows. Um, yeah, I, um, I guess I don't quite understand the question, Paula. No, which is the replacement percentage? Oh, so, so the calling, the, yeah, the calling. Yes. Rate. Yeah, yeah, it's like it, it, we're averaging 30, 35% depending on the month. Okay, okay. Um, Carlos said some high, high group cows were in a body condition score about 2.5 individual. Is that the lowest value you want? Yes. Yes. Uh, I, and, and I don't like to see cows much over 3.2. Okay, and the lowest value is around 2.5? Yes. Okay. And the last one for cows, prefresh decad? Yes. Is 
Right now, I'm, I'm negative 116. Okay. No, no, we don't do urine pHs. Uh, no, we don't do blood calciums. We just, I just watch the cows. Okay, thanks. And don't you love when you have a son who brings you hard seltzers? <laughs> in <the webinar>? oh. <laughs> I'm very happy now. <laughs> all night now. <laughs> yeah, you, um, did he know I was in here? <laughs> no, I don't think he did. Let's see, I'm going to butt in with a question from Sean. Um, since mastitis is the biggest concern and you don't like the conductivity test, is there a better way? Ah. Oh. Well, we do have any questionable cow. Uh, we've, we've got the deal valve uh, cell count tester piece of equipment that works okay. Um, yeah, any 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 questionable cow, we, we get a uh, we get a we measure with that. Um, hopefully, someday someone will come up with a better way to do actual somatic cell count on 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 cows in the parlor. All right, back to you, Paula. <laughs> or do you want me to ask my okay. um, heifer questions? As you want. Oh. <laughs> I can start. I can start. Okay, you start. Okay. You might have them anyway. Okay, I, I, I'm, I think you told us that uh, calves were fed with milk replacer and waste milk also. Is it right? right? That is correct. Okay. Uh, which is the energy and protein concentration in the pre-winged calves diets? Well, I don't know. Um, the, well, the milk, okay, so let me say this. The milk replacer is at 30, 32. Uh, so you might as well say that we're feeding uh, between whole milk and that milk replacer uh, that's going to be pretty high energy, pretty high protein. Uh, the calf starter that they're fed is 22% protein uh, and a lot of fermentable fiber in it and a lot of sugar in it. Um, an energy value on it, I, I have no idea. I, I just look at those numbers for the model. Okay, great. And the same question for growing high first diets from two to six months and from six to 12 months. All right, so from two to six months. So here's my high cow diet. And here is those calves from two to six months. They, like I said, I feed them the high cow diet. So they are consuming on average, that barn would, will be consuming just about five kilos of dry matter. Um, and you can see, oh man, that's all messed up.
and it is supporting. Uh, it's saying that's that's saying it's only supporting about a kilo of gain, uh, and I know that they're growing more than that. Um, I must have something weird set up there. This is what happens when you use your primary program to do trainings is sometimes your data gets all messed up. Gotta be something stupid. Oh yeah, that's what the stupid is. That's not even what it is now. Our average is probably like that. Didn't really change. What I live in hell. Um, yeah, now these girls feed these girls the, the high cow diet, and, and just I just get out of their way with how uh, like you, like like you saw in the day in the graph from the farm. Day seventy eight through six months of age, that that group's averaging uh, over one point two. Uh, I think it was over one point three kilos a day. So this was a question that Marcos had was if your goals of the high body weight gain, is that why you're using the high group TMR or is it a nutritional or a management decision? Well, that is a great question. Um, because if we look at, this is actually a great little graph that I put together. So if we, so I calculated uh, the energy and protein requirements per kilo of intake. Okay, so this is the energy, the mcals of me per kilo of intake for a two-month-old heifer. So we got two, three. You know, this is for 900 grams a day. And then a far-off dry cow, a prepartum cow, a, a lactating heifer growing 500 grams a day, a mature cow giving 30 kilos, 40 kilos, 50 kilos. You can see that that, and, and this is for 24 month age of first calving. These calves, you know, less than five months of age, they really have pretty similar energy requirements as a cow given 40 50 kilos if we look at it from an mp basis it's the same thing you know you look at the these these three and four month old heifers they actually have this three month old heifer has a higher protein requirement than a cow giving 50 kilos okay look at this look this heifer this pre-fresh heifer she has the same protein requirements as a cow giving 50 kilos. So it really is, it's a nutritional decision. Yes, I have to grow them as fast as I do to hit the target weights because we calve at 21 months. But regardless of what calving age, calving age is, the growth requirements of these young heifers 
are extremely high. And then you add on top of that how efficient they are at depositing frame and muscle during this stage. They are, they are as efficient as high producing cows. And if we don't feed them that way, we are giving up all sorts of, of potential uh, gains in terms of, of economics of, of heifer rearing. Tom, people would love to have this graph. <laughs> they can generate it from the program because the ME and MP per kilo of body weight are recipe outputs. Yep. All right, um, I'm gonna ask a real quick question while we're, let's see. I'm gonna go stay with heifers, but then we've gotta go, we've got a question about dry cow diet. Um, let's see, is the composition of the TMR used for heifers in breed, what is the composition of the TMR and, per, and type of forage used for heifers and around breeding age and pregnant? Okay, so I used to have a couple diets for heifers. Now I've only got, once they go from the high cow diet, they're going to this diet. And I formulate this diet because this is across a wide range of, of requirements and ages. Um, so I actually formulate this diet for the mid to late pregnant heifer. And then I'll also look at it for the youngest heifers that it's fed for to ensure that I have enough protein, especially knowing that those heifers around breeding age and early pregnant heifers, I'll be overfeeding protein. I'd rather do that than short anybody on protein. So this is, this is the base diet. I do include a, a kilo of refusals from the lactating cows in this diet. Uh, the dry cow grass is, uh, it, it's their cool season grasses harvested late. Uh, so they're, they're low energy, high fill, um, typically around 62 to 65 NDF. There we go. 9% protein, 10% protein. Yeah, in this case, 70% NDF. Uh, and I just let them eat as much of this diet as they want um, and then supply adequate MPs to, to make sure that I've got the, the gains where I want them. All right, uh, good. Uh, Paula has one more question on heifers. Go for it, Paula. Yes, okay. Uh, what are your body weight goals for heifers relative to mature weight? Uh, okay, so the easiest way to show that is right here. So with a mature weight of 700 and let's take that up to round up 750 kilos. Our target breeding weight is around 400 kilos 410 kilos. 
Uh, and that's real, that, that's really what we do target. Um, first calving, I want them to be as close to 80, 82% of mature weight as possible. Uh, we're getting close, that, that's, that's a pretty hard number to, to achieve actually. Um, and then beyond that, they're, they're just gonna grow to meet, meet these next range of targets. Uh, my, minimum, my minimum on any farm is to double birth weight by 50, 55 days of age. Uh, there's no reason why we can't be 2.2 to 2.5 uh, as a minimum target for uh, birth to weaning. Uh, and then my rate of gain uh, from there to breeding is somewhat dependent upon the desired age of first calving. Uh, you know, at 21 months, I've got to average a kilo, uh, over a kilo. If we were 24 months, I'd only have to average 800 grams, uh, but I'm still going to push those, those younger heifers harder to take advantage of their efficiency. Um, and and that, that's, these, these are very achievable rates of gain to, to do. Uh, it's, you know, this farm a long time ago, uh, one of the partners on the farm told someone when they, they were asked about heifers and why they do 21 month age of first calving, he had the perfect answer. Until that heifer calves and, and becomes a cow and it's putting milk in the tank, we're a beef operation. We need to feed them to grow as fast and as efficiently as possible. That's the cheapest way to do it. Okay, great, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Okay, Paula, do you have more questions? So they were wondering what um, Tom was uh, sharing in the screen, but I was telling them that I, I can see that, but I cannot see the numbers either. <laughs> so it's the oh, same. Okay, Paula, oh, you should have said, I'll send you, um, I'll, I'll send you the farm file. Okay, thank you. That would um, be great. Tom, can we look at the dry cow diet? Uh, far off or close up? I think, um, let's see if we get communication on that. I think we've looked at the close up. Let's look at, well, let's start with the far off and then move to the close up. Okay, far, far off. off. Okay, so the far off diet's pretty damn simple. I feed some refusals about, I think this one's gonna be about four kilos of refusals. That grass silage. Yeah. Six and a half kilos of that grass silage, six kilos of corn silage, and a little bit of minerals. And So it is, it's high fill, 1% forage NDF is a percent of body weight. Um, and anything I can do to try and keep those girls from neither gaining nor losing weight. I think some of these numbers look really funky. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but but again, remember, these cows are only, are, are only on this diet for three to four weeks. Okay. Um, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Paula, questions? Yes, I'm here. No. <laughs> You're out? Yes, finally. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it, it was going to be like this. Oh, I did too. I did too. But the, we were we were very excited to do this. I am thinking we're out of questions here. Um, yeah, I'm not getting any. So this seems good. Sean, are you good with any questions? He has. I'm good. Here. I'm good. Hey, I'm uh, here. I'm here. Right. I'm good. Thank you. Well, we had um, we had a great list of questions from Marcos Neves Piera. And he said to just pass on his thanks for your hard work and to the farm that that gave, opened up and, and let you do all this as if they have a choice. Um, and yeah, we've had a lot of thanks for this webinar. And like Marianne said, we're gonna use this webinar as a jumping off point one, one of the comments we got this morning was we only really did the tour side and not the Tom walking through a herd doing an evaluation. Um, and it was just too much. It was too much to try and do those two things in one webinar. Uh, so we'll do, a, we'll do several follow-ups uh, using this farm actually as a base. <laughs> Uh, to do these, you know, what do I do when I walk on a farm? We'll dig into some specific areas within the farm and like that. Uh, if you want to get into some things with, with forages or environmental issues or anything like that, uh, we can easily do, do those uh, with all of this as well. We have so many ideas and I encourage anybody that wants to suggest um, anything, please send me an email. Paula has another question. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's right. Okay, Tom, the last one, I promised you. Uh, what uh, do you think about all that information about the need of calcium and immunity in close-up cows? It all comes down to how can she do calcium metabolism? So we either feed them these low calcium diets with, with negative DCAD to get her to uh, begin mobilizing calcium as she normally would, or we get into using those boluses to try and, 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 and cover it up. I, I don't like giving cows boluses. I don't like giving cows any treatment. So I'll do, I'll try and do anything I can to get the benefits without having to actually touch the cow. Okay, great. Thank you very much. All right. Unless, unless they, Paula gets, uh, <laughs> they are saying, sorry, sorry. They are saying, uh, asking me to plan a visit 
uh, to New York. I, I mean, to the farm, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and we can go and visit you, Tom. Absolutely. You. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and, and if we can't fly places, we're going to try to to do some tours in other farms in other countries. So we'll figure out what we can do. Um, thank you, everybody. Tom, thank you. This was fun. This oh, was yeah. so fun. Thank you, um, everyone. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.